friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 39 of the MC Lars podcast. This is part two of my two-part series on the Dead Milkman. It is Memorial Day, May 27th, 2019, and today I talk with Rodney Anonymous. So Rodney's from Coatesville, Pennsylvania. His parents were Sex Pistols fans, and uh, we talk a lot about on this podcast, the origins of the Dead Milkman, but also something that's always fascinated me about Rodney is his love and appreciation of music of all genres. We talk about the origin of the word punk, the band Suicide, he said, first used it. And what I always love about Rodney is he's a really great storyteller, and he's someone who will forever stay young because of his passion and curiosity for music and the world. We talk about each Dead Milkman album's name and where it came from, and he gives me a little story behind each one, which is kind of cool. We, he tells a story about the time him and Schooly D got kicked out of a recording studio for signing a, a golden record on the wall that wasn't theirs. And he talks about the time Green Day opened for the Dead Milkman, and he talks about Eastern State Penitentiary and doing the punk rock girl video and how he kind of was bored on the set and wandered around and then went home early and how it was like a boring shoot for him. Um, he also talks about Dave and funny stories about him and how his death, when he first heard about it, he thought was like the ultimate prank. We also go into something I don't really talk about is my love of industrial gothic music, which kind of inspired me to fall in love with synths and, you know, programming and all that. So we talk about all these deep bands that we both appreciate. So it gets pretty heavy on the goth industrial love. So that's what's up. This episode is brought to you by the following Patreon supporters. Shout out to Allison, Megan, and Tina. Thank you so much. They recently signed up. And shout out to some of the OGs, Aaron, Robert, and Chris. Uh, enjoy. It's really great to talk to some legendary icons of Philadelphia music, and Rodney was no exception. So enjoy. It is part two of my Dead Milkman series. So we had Joe Jack last week. And today, yes, you know, we had to do it. Rodney Anonymous. What's up, buddy? Why does does Joe get to go the week before me? What am I, chopped liver? Like, you know, uh, maybe we'll go by and get Rodney. No, we're alphabetically. I did alphabetically. What? J, then R. Anonymous comes before (laughs) talcum a before t except after c is the the mathematical role we're in south philadelphia and rodney has kindly put out this beautiful well my wife put out the spread okay just vienna because she is from yeah she's from south philly and that's what you do when people are coming and i mean anybody like the mailman um you know some 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 homeless guy comes walking down the street. Hey, you here? That's the way we should be for homeless. People. You guys, that's why you don't have any food in the house. That's you feed why, everyone. Yeah. No, when I was a kid, we didn't have food in the house. We have food in the house now that I'm an adult. But when I was a kid, there was no food in my folks' house. And we could call my folks right now, and they go, "Yeah, that's pretty much right. There is no food." I kind of just want to call them now, but this- I know it's just be so awesome just to put them on the phone. <laughs> like they back everything up. I had to do that from work because I would tell stories from work because my yeah. mom was a kleptomaniac. Okay. Uh, probably still is. I'm a bit of a kleptomaniac. I'm a little bit better. Yeah. Um, but if it's not nailed down, it's mine. And um, <laughs> my mom once stole a, like a really fancy teapot from somewhere by uh-huh. like putting it under her dress and pretending to be pregnant. Now, I told this story somewhere, and everybody's like looking at me like they don't believe it's true. So I call it, Mom, did you steal it? Oh, yeah, I stole that. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, she's patting her belly going like, oh, any day now. <laughs> You a horrible family I have. 
You grew up in uh, steel mill town. It was, it was a steel town. It was uh, uh, my father worked for the steel mill, and uh, and it's really. I, I say I grew up in one of the last vestiges of feudalism in the world. Uh, it wow. was a uh, you know the town owned everything. Yeah, and uh, it, not so much as when I was growing up. Although basically, you had like five or six rich families, and everybody else was fairly poor. Uh, everybody else, you know, your your folks worked at the steel mill, like my dad did. Although there was a lot of, you know, and by the time we got to the seventies and stuff, there was a lot of layoffs. The steel mill wasn't as prevalent, but in the nineteen thirties, twenties, and thirties, in order to keep people from unionizing, because you had this vast workers' rights movement, <laughs> they put up towers. And the towers had lights on them, and they would just shine the lights around to make sure that you know you weren't allowed to meet in groups of more than like three people Jeez. because that's a union meeting. Yeah. And then goons would come over. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. Did, so while they're working, they shine no, the lights. Not while on they're them. working. This is oh, night. in the town. At night there were towers with lights on. Oh them. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and that would so like when you hear this stuff, that it really does influence your writing. What's the town called? Coatesville. Okay. And yeah. then when did you move to Philadelphia? I moved to Philadelphia right, I dropped out of college in my early 20s. Okay. And moved to Philadelphia. Hide from my parents. I didn't want them to know I dropped out of college. And they were pretty, you know, I was like the first male in my family ever to go to college. Yeah. And and we'd been here since like the 1600s. So that's a pretty big accomplishment. Like not to have anybody else in the family for like 300 years go to college. See, so, oh, yeah. wait, so your family was like some of the first generation? No, not really. No, no, there were people here before. They were yeah. that part of that, the sort of Germans that came over and into eastern Pennsylvania. Yeah. And I've actually seen, I've been in, in the Philadelphia, um, uh, the main library has all the ship records. So my ancestor, Johannes, came over on the, Lo the Loyal Judith, and I think like 1690. So they're okay. in, when they start doing the early censuses before, even before it's the United States, they turn up in the early censuses. Uh, one of my one of my uh, ancestors had one of the first illegitimate children in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So see, stealing teapots—that's a set. That's step up. That's, <laughs> yeah, technically. Yeah. So okay. So oh, they were horse thieves too. I forgot to mention that the Linderman family was horse thieves mm -hmm. as, as well. So you come from a long line of rap scallions. Yeah, I do. A, a long, <laughs> long line of scallywags. <laughs> and so you <laughs> charged with scallywagism. You dropped out of college. What were you studying? Uh, political science. Political okay. science major, public administration minor. Okay. And that was, uh, what year was that you moved to Philadelphia? I would have probably come to Philadelphia in 83 or 84. Completely different city then than it is now. Um, it's weird. My office now at work is where I out my windows where they built the new Comcast building. And it's just, you know, there were no new buildings then. It was it was gloriously depressing. I loved it. In my memories, it's always winter. And so it's like it is outside now, uh -huh. except there, there's nothing to do. There's never anything to do. So you had to make your own. People formed bands and, and have parties because we literally had nothing to do. There were, Nobody came through. Occasionally there'd be a punk rock show. Um, and you didn't know if you were going to exit that alive. And it wasn't because of the people at the show. It was because, you know, the people in the area would just see like a mohawk. You know, now it's weird. I work with people who have green hair. You come in with green, yeah. purple hair. And the companies are fine with that. But back then, it was a death sentence. Right. That was the counterculture then. Yeah, that was, yeah. The misunderstood that counterculture. Was, that was the under the counterculture. <laughs> that wasn't even the counterculture. You had to, you had a, you know, had whisper and the guy would reach under the counter and he would give you some of that culture. Uh, when do you remember... <laughs> When do you remember first hearing punk rock for the first time? Oh, my God. Uh, my parents, I guess the first official punk rock, my parents, uh, the Sex Pistols would come to America, and they were on the news, and my parents saw them and fell in love with them. My really? parents, Yeah, because my parents had been rockers in the 50s. 
Yeah. And they hated hippies and they hated like long jammy music. Like, you know, like Pink Floyd for my parents would have been. And I, I like a lot of Pink Floyd, but they uh, um, for them, that would have been a death sentence. You know, and uh, um, they just didn't like that sort of stuff. Um, so what they, they liked was, you know, people in leather jackets with short hair, you know, banging out quick songs. So they're watching TV and this, the pistols are being interviewed and they're being rude. This, this guy's just horrified by the pistols. Right. He's like, you know, we found porno mags. And they said that they wouldn't do an interview unless we gave them bleeping $10. And my parents are laughing because they get the joke. You know, right. they, they were working class people. This is funny to them. Yeah. And they were like, get down here and see this. My, my mom has, was a big Bowie fan and had seen Bowie in 74. So my sister got to go to that concert. And I got to go, I, I think it's 74. It's maybe the concert I might have been going to was 76. I'm two years younger than my sister. So once you reached, uh, how old, once you reached 13 in my family, you were allowed to go to concerts. And usually my folks would come with you or they'd sit outside, you know, and you come into Philadelphia and you go down to the spectrum, they drop you off. You went in and you saw the concert. So my sister got to see, she got to see Bowie at the Tower when she was 13. Uh, with, my mom went to that one. When I was 13, I got to see Yes in the round. <laughs> that was my. Yeah, think about that. Uh, sister got to see Bowie at the Tower. That got recorded. I got to see Yes in the round. But uh, Rick Wakeman playing the synthesizers, just, you know, his, his rig and everything. Uh, it was a big influence on me. It's why I wear a cape on stage to this day. Hey. <laughs> big cape. Yeah. And why you rock the synthesizers. Yeah, oh yeah, I totally, yeah. <laughs> so your your parents were in, very informative on your musical loves and influences. They were to a certain point. Um, I think that they kind of... I, you know, I think they kind of just stopped liking music. They, they kind of they would lose interest and come back in, you know, and, and I think that happens to just a lot of people. You know, um, I, I know a lot of people I grew up with in the you know, punk scene and stuff, and they just kind of lost interest in music. My parents, yeah. the same sort of thing. When they were young, they were, they were the, the best thing musically is to be born at a time when something old is dying, or not to be born at a time, be in your late teens, maybe early 20s, uh, or just any age where you're musically aware, probably from 11 on. Before 11, yeah. your tastes are pretty, are pretty bad, I think, you know. Like, my, my, I, I had That's two sisters, funny. and they, they had horrible taste in music. Like, one liked Fleetwood Mac, and the other one liked uh, um, Sean Cassidy, you know. And I was stuck in the middle listening to the Dead Boys. But the, um, I was lucky because I hit that area. My folks had, had, had grown up in, just outside Philadelphia, uh, so they, they were dancers on American Bandstand. And they grew up just as, you know, the Perry Como stuff, was going out and Elvis and Little Richard, you know, really good, interesting rock and roll was coming in. Yeah. So they loved that. And that was, and, and the weird thing was in Philadelphia, and that was on the radio. That was not on the radio in a lot of other places. You know, black music was not on the radio. They called it race music and they would bring in Pat Boone to do his own version of Little Richard songs. And mm. if you, you probably heard them, but like Pat Boone, what he does with those songs is horrible. He's like, Long Tall Sally. Hey, she's long and lean. She's got everything that Uncle John. And you're like, kill me. But um, and little Richard, oddly enough, had said at one point he when he first heard uh Pat Boone doing Long Tall Sally, he wanted to kill him. He actually got in his car and he had a gun and he was gonna kill Pat Boone. But on his way down, he stopped at the mailbox and there was a check in the mailbox that he got money from Pat Boone saying he's like Maybe I have some other songs Pat Boone would like to sing. So yeah, <laughs> that's that, a good story. Yeah, that's a great. That's one of my favorite. <laughs> it, it's a great way to get the perspective on it. But yeah, my I, I happen to be lucky enough that as that sort of classic rock was was sort of dying uh, and punk was coming up, you know, and and that was really refreshing. I mean, you know, when I, I can remember the first time I heard like you know somebody had a uh, thing of TVOD 
or uh, just like really, first of all, I was a big Belly fan. So the, the most influential things on me, I happened to be at the right age when Belly put out his Berlin trilogy. Uh, and, and that was a big changer. But that was really stark and different. And there was all this other stark and different stuff coming around. So yeah. I hit a big lucky patch. I mean, you know, when you first hear like Public Image Limited. So I was, uh, you know, somewhere in high school, not quite college yet when, when you know, X, Black Flag, all that stuff is happening. So it, it, it's a try to be born, try to luck it out. So you're born as, you know, one thing is dying and you can hop on the new thing. What would that be now, like an intersection of th- something dying and something? I think what's dying now is that sort of very friendly alt rock, you know, it, it, the sort of like, like Imagine Dragons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try not to imagine them. Um, <laughs> <Hey>! <laughs> thank you. Yeah, me neither. Uh, we, yeah, I can't, <laughs> I can't afford HBO, so I can't really see Game of Thrones. I have to imagine dragons. <laughs> thank you. Um, I think that is on its way out. And I think I, I'm seeing, like I say, like Boy Harsher, you know, like all these sort of very, um, also, um, uh, I'm really impressed by the fact there's a band called Horror. That are amazing. Oh, they're amazing. They are horror. Have you seen them live yet? No. You've got to, I swear, next time, if you're in town, yeah. I'm in town, horror in town, we're going to go see horror. They're, they're on the new Prodigy thing. You need to see them live. Live, um, again, I saw them in the basement of the Unitarian Church, which makes me wonder a lot about like the basic tenets of Unitarianism. <laughs> is there something, is they have a commandment where they have to have punk rock shows in the basement? <laughs> but the um, they came, at, I, oh God, it was a... Uh, um, Oh, oh, I can't. Street Sex was opening from uh, Austin, who are amazing. And I forget who else. I, I think horror may have been on the same bill with Three Teeth. So, I mean, that's a great show. Yeah. There were maybe 100 people there. I think since then, probably about seven or 800 people have claimed to have been there for the show. Uh-huh. But they, um, horror divide the crowd into two groups. Like, you know, everybody on this side. So I thought, oh, this is how old I am and dumb. I thought, oh, they're going to, the singer's going to run up and down between one of the singers. No, you divide them, divide them into two groups so we could run at each other right. like some medieval battle. I didn't know that. I was across from like this huge guy. I smacked into him. My friend Noah saw the whole thing, laughed his ass off. I just, I just, you know, and I was in slow motion. Like at first, I realized like, oh, we're going to run at each other. I'm going to die. <laughs> and my head starts doing all those calculations about like center of gravity, you know. And after a while, I just thought, no, it's just going to hurt. So yeah, but that was horror, absolutely amazing. Um, Oh God, we uh, just did a show with uh, Youth Code. Uh, Youth Code are are very in your face. I think right now, um, Lingua Ignata. Also, I think right now we're seeing the era of uh, the uh, the angry female singer, which is fantastic. Right. Angry female musician, because you know, as men, we can get angry, but we can never get as angry as women can get angry because women have to have to fight a lot of battles we don't have to fight. Like yeah. I don't understand why women just don't get up in the morning swearing. If I was a woman, I'd <laughs> <laughs> well, women of color it's gotta be like a thousand times worse for that i'm like a, i'm like an old white guy and i'm angry and i can't imagine if i was like you know but I, I i see a lot of these and i always try to i really like it if we can get a band at least one of the bands on a bill that has at least one female member it's not a matter of you know like some sort of tokenism it's a matter of i like to see when a young girl in the audience has somebody on stage she can relate to yeah and uh we had a um a rose garden funeral party uh, open for us in um, Dallas. And there was a young lady, uh, you know, a lot of people came and they bring their kids, which is weird for me, for our, our shows. But it's like older punks have kids. Oh, we'll take the kids. And uh, Rose Garden were and playing and the young lady plays guitar and there's a girl like strumming air guitar and, and watching her and, you know, and, uh, Lana from uh, Rose Garden and she was just blown away. She's like, ooh. And um, what happened was the father's like, you, you want a guitar? You want 
For those of you yeah. listening, I'm I'm whispering and miming a lot. Yeah, that always helps on on podcasts. Yeah. Well, yeah, because that's the problem with rock is it's always been very male centered and. The guitar is like a phallic thing, and like it's it's male centered. It's moved away. From, yeah. yeah, it used to be like super male centered, and then you begin to get people like uh, um, you know even I guess Little Richard was the first sort of uh, you know like foot in the door for something that wasn't sort of macho male centered, and then you got stuff like Freddie Mercury. You got you know you have people like that, and, and Elton John. It's great. Rock was willing to to not pick on those people. You know they, right. they were icons. You know you couldn't have had a Boy George without those guys. You know and and it's. So I, I, but I think you begin that begins to make a movement towards and you know when I was young my hero was Patti Smith I wanted to be Patti Smith Patti Smith was the toughest person I could think of that that was an interesting thing ta- talking to John Hall from King Missile yeah. about how um, he said the first time he felt comfortable with his masculinity was when he saw Patti Smith yeah oh that's a great line cool. oh yeah. I wish I'd said that <laughs> yeah yeah she um she changed everything you saw her on TV when you when you saw female singers on TV they put them in a dress. And they, they, they did, and this is one thing that kind of bothers me about alt-rock, this in alt-rock. I don't like the, infant- the infantilization of women, where mm. you make them sing in that little girl voice. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. This. You know, women should be shouty and screamy because they have a lot to talk about. And, they, and, and in order to be heard, you have to be loud. And right. I think that, and so, what, like, people don't understand now what a breath of fresh air someone like Patti Smith was. And it's it's weird. I'm glad John said that. I wish I got to talk to him more. I didn't get to hang out with him much because he showed up, like, super late to his show because he didn't know when it was going to start. I, I, kept, I thought he was going to show up, hang out with everybody, and, and we get to talk to him yeah. a lot, but I didn't. But you got to talk to him so vicariously. I can li- I can go back and listen to that interview and just I'll, I'll fill it in. I'll take it. I'll chop it up. I'll just put me in there asking your question. King Missile's been playing New York a lot these days, and it's kind of cool. Yeah. He's had this like resurgence. You played with Sage Francis and in yes. New York recently, yes. and so John came out and did take stuff from work. Work, yeah. We did Bitch and Camaro. Yeah. And we I, I was shooting stuff back and forth with him. I'm like John, why don't you put you on the guest list if you don't mind? Why don't you come out and do something? It'd be a nice. It'd be a nice treat for the audience yeah. who have paid too much to see us. And um, John, you know, John was like, well, maybe I'll do this or I'll do that. Maybe I'll, you know. And finally, like right before he went out, he goes, yeah, I'm going to do take stuff from work. I'm like, yeah. and he owned it. He came out and it was awesome. The audience is all pumped up. And it was great because yeah. there was this come out of nowhere. Like, all right, ladies and gentlemen, here's John Hall from King Missile. John Hall comes out, does that, and the audience is pumped and comes. And it's, he's a tough act to follow. So it's a good thing I got to go into the whole, you know, Bitch and Camaro thing because <laughs> otherwise, I, you know. I don't think I could have followed that up with a ballad. And what I've always loved about King Missile has is that they've kind of always been in that, you could say, post-punk tradition. And yeah, yeah, Joe and I yeah. talked about this, that Dead, Dead Milkman, he always felt like we're post-punk in that you took the energy of punk, yeah. but you did it in a unique style. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, I've always gravitated, I think, more to post-punk. I, I, I liked hardcore bands. I liked punk bands. But to me, the more interesting stuff, I mean, to me, Echo and the Bunny Men are probably a little bit more interesting than the Pistols. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's it's, it's that sort of thing. I probably get death threats for saying that, but um, you know there was you know punk itself lasted for maybe two years, and right. then the post punk stuff came because people were influenced by it and began to say you know punk opened the door, and then you begin to get people saying, oh wait, I can do this and I can do that. I, I could name you know I say you rattle off like a thousand post punk bands that I love. There's still a lot of great post punk out there, you know, but uh, um, the, but just punk just coming up and saying and. Um, Oh, um, Phil Oakey, which is a weird name because Phil Oakey should be the name of a, like a country western singer. But <laughs> Phil Oakey from the Human League was talking about. They said, you know, it was the influence of the Damned and the Pistols, where people were just saying, 
go and try, particularly the dam. You know, he said the dam than the clash. You know, um, you know, basically saying it go, just go, go try it. You don't have to because before that you had to play your instrument for decades and decades and get really, really good at right. it. And you had to, you know, and these guys were just like, nah, I'm I'm gonna just cut right to having fun. So yeah, that's why I love the dam. I'm a big dam fan. The dam, yeah, they, I mean, aren't they credited as one of the first, they, if not they the, were first the first punk band? Yeah, I would say the first punk band, the band to use the term punk, was actually the American band Suicide, uh, a band I love. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, and they basically they were a drum machine, an organ, and a guy just, you know, shouting stuff. And Suicide got. Um, Alan Vega from Suicide got an axe thrown at him on stage opening for The Clash because the audience didn't think they they thought they were, I guess they were too punk for the punk crowd or whatever, but they came out, you know, and they're doing this noisy jam and somebody actually threw an axe at him. And he's like, it was like coming at him in slow motion. I mean, I've heard of Cutting Edge, but this yeah, is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Well, he got hit with how a tire iron. How yeah. do you bring an axe into a I know, show? How do you get that into a show? <laughs> Bouncers really didn't check back then. Yeah, right. but did they bring the axe? I have a lot of questions did about the axe. Did they well, did they bring it for the Clash and just not like this band? Did the guy think because I knew clubs were tough, but the guy having to defend himself? How did they have a wood chopping job? Dang. I have a lot of questions. Like, well, somebody once threw a uh, we were on stage in Chicago and somebody threw a pineapple at Dave Blood, and we couldn't figure out where the hell the pineapple came from. Like we were. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure it was Chicago where the pineapple came from. They was like, where the hell did the pineapple come you, from? You know, on Nantucket, the um, captains. The successful captains would have pineapples on their doors. Yeah, as we were a sign talking about those, those gifts. Yeah, the yeah. weird because in the um, in the Philippines they have a tradition of a sack of rice as a gift. Um, like it's you know it's like like the pineapple. It's like right. it's not nobody's excited about. It's just a traditional thing you give. But a friend of mine at, <laughs> at work was telling somebody, it's like, oh, you know, what like, you have any traditions for Christmas? And he said sack of rice and. The other guy thought he said a sacrifice, and it was like the most <laughs> uncomfortable three hours until it got straightened out. The sacrifice, that's Easter. Yeah, that's Easter. Yeah, you want to do that on Easter, yeah. So I want to talk about later, we'll get into this more, but something you and I have bonded over a lot over the years is we both love gothic industrial music. I love gothic industrial and, music. And Poe is, is good because I'm gothic. married to a goth, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you guys- I'd be in deep trouble if I did. <laughs> you. That's something we'll get into yeah. more. I want to start this interview with a story. So- yeah, all right. 2011, this is how you and I connected. I did an interview when I was on Warp Tour, and someone asked me what I hoped one day maybe my legacy would be. And I said, the biggest dream I could ever have would to be somehow be remembered as like a, remembered as someone who was funny and original, who made quality music and loved by a group of people, kind of like the Dead Milkman. That's my biggest dream. I think you also said someone who, who's remembered as not selling out. As I not selling was, yeah, out, Not yeah. selling out, which is important. Yeah, yeah, that was part of it too. And you freaking emailed me, yeah. and I was on the bus on Warp Tour, like in Iowa or something, and I got an email from you that you'd seen this interview and yeah. that the shout-out I gave you, and it was just like a defining moment that I'd... Which was weird, because I was familiar <laughs> with your music before. I'd heard your stuff, and it's, it's odd. Like, I never make these connections that... People I listen to might actually have listened to the stuff I do, um, like MC Chris. I can never. There's nothing in my head that you know it, it ever said that. So right, um, right. You know, so I never. So I thought, oh, this is great, and it was a super nice thing to say. You know, and it's weird because you know it's it, you don't think anybody's going to see those, and you know. The, yeah, and I've it, been saying nice stuff about Elvis for like the last <laughs> ten years, and he has never sent me an email saying thank you, man, thank you very much. That's the thing, Rodney. Like it was like this cool moment for me that one of my heroes huh. was reading what I had to say, and then we formed this friendship over wonderful the past yes, eight years. Yes, it is and, a wonderful friendship. And you yes. have been on stage with me like countless times, yeah, countless times with the Raven. Yeah, <laughs> and I've op I've opened for you guys, and oh, yeah. you br you brought me out with 
the milkman before yep. in in Philadelphia. And and one time we were at the Edgar Allan Poe house. Yes, when you tried to jump the fence <laughs> on Halloween. Tell night. the whole story. And so we were. <laughs> All right. No, I'm telling it. So we take, Dean and I take, yeah. take Lars to the Edgar Allan Poe house. We're all big Edgar Allan Poe fans. The house in Philly, by the way, they once let me go down to the basement there and uh, record uh, um, impulses to make reverbs out of. Oh, right. So I'm down the basement smacking things. Yeah. And people are walking around above hearing these noises come out of the basement in the, uh, in the Edgar Allan Poe house. And the Edgar Poe, there's people who were cool with it. All right. So it was Halloween night. They're shutting it down. And, and Dean and I show you the house, but we can't get in there because it's, you know, it's closing for the night. Yeah. And we turn around and you were attempting to go over the fence to the Edgar Allan Poe house. And we got you off the fence and we, we quickly explained that that's federal property and you go to federal prison. And the guys in federal prison are not there for jumping the fence at the... <laughs> well, I wanted to get a picture. Now, now they're there for, for working for Trump, I guess. But yeah. They, <laughs> I wanted to get a picture with the Raven statue. Yeah, but, I don't blame you. But, I, I, I concur. But it I is, probably I, shouldn't have hopped the fence. I, I would have... I've yeah. done stuff like that. Yeah. And I was like, and I remember <laughs> Dean was like, I'm out of here. I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to be affiliated. We have a show to play. Yeah, I got to go. I got to, I got to, somebody's got a drum. That's true. <laughs> if anything happens to me, I mean, they can always find somebody to put, you know, play keyboards and sing, but drummers are, are difficult to find. Yeah. And you guys played on my Edgar Allan Poe EP. We redid yes. the Raven song, which, yeah. well, and I, we did that black cat cover. I wish that would see the light of we day. We got to finish yeah. that. Yeah. You know, I want to do a Poe, Edgar Allan Poe LP there of all his other yeah. songs, so stories. So that that should go on that. That was tight. How did you meet Joe? Uh, I went to high school with him. And yeah. he was, uh, um, I think we sat in the same lunch table. And uh, um, I don't think he spoke for a long, long time. And it was, it was like a lunch table just full of weirdos. You know how like, like lunch, like right, people right, are not right. allowed to sit with everybody else? And he was a little right. bit older than me. And there was a... Uh, it was weird. There's one guy who was like a cool guy in school, and he liked to hang out with us for reasons I could never understand. Maybe he just didn't realize how uncool we were. Uh, and then there was like a guy who was uh, um, really wanted to be a minister and would just say weird things. So we we would amuse ourselves listening to him and a couple other just just the outcasts of the world. And yeah. um, Joe had uh, I came in the school like right after Christmas break. 1979 going into 80 or New Year's break. Yeah. And I came in, so it's the 80s. And Joe had this tape of this band he called The Dead Milkmen and had a song, it was called So Long 70s. Him and some other people just recorded this nonsense on New Year's Eve. Yeah. Like, yeah. So they, uh, um, I believe it was that that was the official time for it. I know Joe and I played no, a show, I think, on New Year's Eve once too. That's what he out. said. That's the same story he yeah. told, uh, told. Good. Me. I'm glad yeah. it matches up because he yeah. lies all the time. And I always have to clean up his mess. I'm like, he has lied about the name of the band. He's like, he's, well, yeah, he said, oh, here's, so I don't let me say he's lied. He said, he's taken liberties with the truth. Do you want me to tell you what he said or do you want to tell no, me? No, I want to hear what he said because I can, I can correct it. I have to go, actually go on podcast. I'll hear him on a podcast. I'll go on just to correct him. So he, <laughs> so he said that um, the, the character of Joe Jack, no, the character of Jack Talcum yes. was a lead, was the shadow Bob Dylan who yes. formed a punk band. It was a cross between Bob Dylan and, um, and John Lennon, because John Lennon was still alive at this point. Oh, and, right. Yeah. Oh, wow. And he, uh, um, and he had like this obnoxious girlfriend named Kit McCat, who was based on Yoko Ono. So, so you didn't talk about that. No. So it, it, basically, he created this whole mythology, which I love. And there's this guy who people wanted to work with, but he had this horrifying girlfriend who would try to like make these films and art projects in the middle of stuff. And he would recreate these things, which is really odd. It's yeah. amazing. And yeah. and he talked about how he had a newsletter, but all yeah. the people on his staff secretly hated 
Jack Talcum. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, because yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty good twist. They oh, yeah, hated their was, boss. I think it was Kip McCat's fault. Yeah. 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 And then, and so then he talked about how he wanted to call himself Joe Dipthong. Like, yes, he did. That was, he, that was, and then back when you guys started naming yourselves. But he also said that the band's name didn't, is not a Toni Morrison reference. It comes from the fact that Milkmen were uh, something fading out when he lit, when him growing up. How would he have known they were fading out? He wouldn't have known that if, if, no, okay, look, that's like if we do an That's what he now, said. That's if we do, like, that's if we done an interview. No, no, no. He said it's retro, retroactively is what gave Dead Milkman meaning. Like oh. he's saying, he, he hadn't heard of, he wanted to be like the Dead Boys. Yeah. He hadn't heard of the Dead Kennedys. He just yeah. thought it was like a kind of a rural thing. Dead I, milk. I think it's odd that, uh, first of all, again, it'd been like if you, if, 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, I'd call myself Rodney Tesla because the Tesla is going to be big and it didn't exist yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but- yeah, it makes no sense. I'm saying that, I'm saying that he was reading, see, he, he's an intellectual and he likes, like, he, for some reason, uh, when people think the milkmen, you know, are, are 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 dumb or whatever, that amuses him. You know, I mean, like he really like it, it angers me. I'll be like, we have degrees, but no, he um he you know he's he he, he that amuses him. So I think it's part of him that would never admit it. But I swear <laughs> he was reading Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon around that time, right? Uh, and the lead character is Milkman Dead, right? Uh, well, also, he's not telling us. I think the milkmen had come from his family would create. Uh, there's a documentary about uh, Stephen Hawking. And his family did the same thing Hawkins' family did. They would create these, they take a board game and they would mutate it into something else. So it would take days to play. And at one point, him and his friend Garth had come up with a game that was like a payola game where you paid to race these songs up and down the charts. <laughs> and all of Joe's songs were like, Joe the Magnificent, Joe the One. And all of Garth's songs were like, I hate Joe, Joe must die. <laughs> and they would pay and they'd spin this thing. And yeah. it was, I mean, but it would go on for days. It was like, uh, um, oh, like Risk. But it was, you know, and that risk goes on forever. Yeah. So they they did that, and then Joe had created this history of this band, and the band, right. uh, uh, I think they started off as Sunflower Children of God. They were a hippie band. Okay. And then they went through all these mutations, and at one point they were called the, they, the Milkmen, and they became a punk band, and they became the Dead Milkmen. And that's, right. That is, I think, and there's a guy in the band called Richard Nixon who played keyboards, and he was called Richard Nixon because he he taken a lot of drugs during the 60s. And he couldn't remember his name, so he picked up a newspaper and he took the first name. That he, and then Joe created the, and the mythology. That guy died playing the keyboards, so Joe did this song where there's this long note, like, mm, and that's supposed to be the guy's head on the keyboard. This swan is, song. This is, what? It's swan song. Yeah, it's like, this is this was when you're living in a steel town and you're young, you have to amuse yourself. The fact and that there's no actually, internet. it became a band makes no sense. Yeah. Again, like my wife says, none of this makes any sense. Like, not only that, became a band that yeah, but people, people pay to see this band worldwide. This, yeah, this started as a you know as a board game. Really. One of the things I always well, getting into the mythology of the Dead Milkman and the history that's super cool. But also learning about the dynamic between you two. He was saying how when he started the band, no. he wanted you to be this lead singer because he didn't. No. He didn't want to be a, the lead of, and it was something he reluctantly felt extremely like extremely shy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he was he knew you could handle it, but I don't think people realize. Some people, fans, you guys know, but that there are two singers, the Dead Milkman, and you guys are kind of similar sounding. I don't think he can actually sing. He can hit notes. <laughs> I can I can hit notes now. Like my wife is is kind of intrigued by that, where she'll be like, "You realize you hit that note," and I'll be like, "Yeah." Uh, here's the thing. Also, I'm glad that I have like not much musical ability because every time I hit a note or I play something right, 
I'm so happy for it. I know people, no, seriously, I know people that, yeah. that can play every scale, can play by ear, and they don't appreciate it. So I'm super, yeah, he's, I would say he's the one who can sing, I'm the one who can run around the stage. It's, yeah. It, but, and the, the comedy and the parody element, like, has always been something I've loved about the Dead Milkman. And I remember when I heard, you'll dance to anything. Yeah. That is such a <laughs> satirical, it's hilarious and goth people love it, which I'm glad they do because right. I actually, I, I everything in that song, I'm good at talking. So it looks like I'm right. not paying attention, but I, but listening to everything everybody says, uh, it's a skill I developed. It's right, like, right. like it's like being a spy. And so I was out at a club, and th- literally every line from that song is something somebody said in that club that night. It was a goth club. It was just you know, and and you know. I was just somebody actually said Depeche Commode, you know, and I and I love Depeche Mode. And the thing is, like, I get these people like, man, I'm so glad you stuck it to those goth people. I'm like, I love that music. Right, right. You can't you can't really parody something or uh, an art form unless you have some sort of appreciation. For oh, it. that's it, totally. Yeah. You can't unless you're fluent yeah. in a genre. Yeah. You can't effectively make fun of John it. Waters would say that about a lot of things he was making fun of are things he secretly loved. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he loved when. Um, Oh, the film it's an odorama. Um, I, oh no, I can't remember the name of it right now. But the uh, um, he said he loved those, you know, Serkian films. There's, you know, suburbs with the weird lighting and stuff like that. So yeah, you have to really, you have, part of you have to appreciate something in order to destroy it. Doing my satirical songs, yeah. it's like some of the songs people love a lot are from yeah, knowing about crunk or emo music well you couldn't do something like this gigantic robot kills without understanding scott without loving scott yeah, that's a good, yeah. better example yeah that's a great example of a scott of like appreciation of scott yeah they teach, teach, i hope they show that or teach it in scott school <laughs> i hope there's a scott school somewhere like every all these guys named neville and hats yeah. <laughs> we'll get adam Gorin to co-teach yeah. at the scott so like, scott academy school scott academy that's what it should be called because it, it would have to be in scott coventry. academy yeah it would have to be in coventry in the uk um okay so <laughs> So where Sky's big still. Yeah. yeah, well, that's where that's where Jerry Dammers, who uh, started uh, um, the two-tone movement, that's where he lived. Interesting. Yeah, he had no teeth, and he had, but he had this incredible education, and he managed to fund the first, this is a true story, he managed to fund the first specials album uh-huh. by telling his landlord, he owed his landlord back rent, and the landlord couldn't get rid of him. So Jerry Dammers said, if you give me money to make this album, I'll go away. And the guy did it. The guy, in order to get rid of Jerry Dammers, gave him the money to make the first specials album wow. just to get him out of his life. Yeah. And so so he was from Coventry, which was bombed. It, it, yeah, it was bombed. Yeah, it was in there's it, that yeah. famous church that's yeah. like left left bombed out. It's a museum. And there. before that, even it had a bad history. I think it was being termed like being sent to Coventry. In other words, you you were shipped off to this. Send thee to a Coventry. Hey. Yeah. What an unlucky uh, town. This might be worse than where I grew up. Well, so wait, specials it's this town is like a ghost, ghost town. town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is that a, that's about bombed out Coventry. No, movie. it's about uh, actually it's about uh, under around the time Thatcher got in, you were having the uh-huh. riots in the UK. Um uh-huh. They, there had been bands playing everywhere, right? And the bands stopped playing because there was rioting, there was fighting, there was, and they were basically saying there's nothing to do. We we, right. we we had stuff to do. We had this really exciting scene. So yeah, there are two songs that really sum up uh, what life was like during that summer under Thatcher. There's Ghost Town. There's also a song called Red Mecca by Cabaret Voltaire that that hits the same sort of note. Yeah, you are very fluent with. The- your musical history. I, I have to be you because it comes be. up. It comes, you know, it comes up on the road because you're telling stories or you meet somebody as a fan of somebody. Yeah. You say, you know, well, I tell you right now. I was talking about Rockwell the other day at work. The guy did uh, Somebody's Watching Me. Yeah. I was like, I think he's Barry Gordy's son. So 
looked it up. I'm like, you're right, you're right. And that's how he got Michael Jackson on the chorus. Is that Michael Jackson on the chorus? Yeah, that's oh, Michael I Jackson. Not, I should have known that. He's just, like the most obvious thing I don't know. I he's mean, just telling the, the story on the verses. It's like a, it's like a Joe Rodney collaboration. Yeah, there you go. He sounds so much like Michael Jackson. I never put that together. What? So speaking of you'll dance to anything, Bucky Fellini, where does the title of the album come from? Um, the idea is I, I, I like – Fellini films. I like. I. I yeah. I'm more. I grew up more versed in film than anything else. And um. And when you were young, that was rebellion. Uh, pre punk rebellion was weird films. So we would go all the way out to the uh, the Tower Theater, and they would show these weird films. Like you know, they have like pink flamingos on a bill with uh, um, Easy Rider, or they just yeah. You know, it was the weirdest stuff. Sometimes they'd show 24 hours of bad films. I love that. Um. So I liked Fellini, and I liked the idea of, and I didn't find out till later on. There's an old, um, uh, uh, old Catskills uh, Jewish saying of Mendel Picasso, which is a, um, a low rent Picasso. Picasso, in other words, like he'd be oh. like Picasso's third cousin, and it was like, it was like his in joke amongst you know uh, uh, Jewish people in the Catskills. Where does Mendel Mendel just being a generic name? Mendel's like some sort of they took it. I guess it was some sort of like Jewish nickname at the time. Um, okay. There's a um, there's see. a version of Lydia the Tattoo Lady where Groucho Marx refers to Mendel Picasso, and so we looked that up and we found out he was uh. thinking the same thing to us. Bucky Fellini was this sort of low rent Fellini. It was like a like a like a Western Fellini. And and I just, I don't know. It was like one of those things we're sitting around and I, I, I don't know if I said, I don't know whoever said it and we just laugh for like, you know, like it just seemed funny at the time. Bucky, right. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. That's, that's good. Let's go through the album titles. Big oh. lizard in my backyard. There's a story there. Well, we had a roommate who had a big lizard. Joe and I did. Uh-huh. Uh, he had a, he had an iguana and he wasn't good at putting the iguana in his cage, which I'm, I'm totally for. I had a turtle. It was a, a free range turtle. Um, and so the iguana would just roll all over the house. Uh-huh. So then, you know, like one night we're in the living room and we had like guests and he comes in, he just reaches up on the wall and he takes the iguana and somebody thought it was like a fake rubber iguana we had stuck to the wall. Like, no, that's real. And uh, so I don't, that was the inspiration for Big Lizard. Okay. Eat your paisley. Hey, parsley sounds better. Um, Eat your paisley. Okay. At that time, there was a, um, a lot of paisley rock, which okay. isn't bad. But Paisley Rock was like this, uh, like jangly type of like rock that was, uh, um, oh, uh, Let's Active was a was a, and I love Let's Active, but there's just we just thought it was it was just funny to say eat your Paisley. Also, I think I had a party at one point around that time, and somebody was I had like a Paisley jacket, and somebody was really offended by it. This guy's like, oh, he was like yelling at me, and I think that that was the guy who inspired the title. He was yelling Paisley. about your, fi- yeah, he was style. like yelling about the Paisley. It really upset the Paisley jacket upset him so much, and I was like. Okay. And it was, it was just like, he wasn't even, I didn't know him. He's like one of those people, when you have a party, there are people that show up and they're never with anybody. And I was like, right, right, right. Who, who, who let that guy in? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know him. I don't know him. Yeah. But he sure hates Paisley. Yeah. My friend Rocco once tricked me when I was young into going to like a serious adult party. But that's a whole nother story. Okay. So Beazle Bubba, maybe Beazle Bubba yep. is self-explanatory, but how do you? No, not really. Because it's, tell us. Well, it's uh, Brian uh, Beatty came up with it. He's really good at coming up with band names. He came up with Joan of Arkansas, which is a great band That's name. That's great. Yeah, and I don't know if he came up with Bad Mother Goose or not, but um, he uh, he's really good. So he said, we were sitting around, we were trying to come up with like funny devil names. That was around the time of this old satanic panic. Right, And he right. said, Beelzebubba. And it's weird, because like, I think of like Bubba Hotep years later. Right, so right, right. The right. idea of the Bubba is, yeah. But the, uh, um, yeah, he, he came up with that. That yeah, I had to actually satanic panic and all that stuff. I explained to the I did a podcast where I was playing Dungeons and Dragons with a kid, and I had to explain to him how at one point people were convinced that Dungeons and Dragons was going to make their kids grow horns and, right. and leap in front of and Harry Potter. Kid. Yeah, Harry Potter. Oh, well, that was Harry Potter. I always had something to blame. Yeah, 
Beelzebub, MC Chris and our roommate from hell has that reference, right? He said, yeah. how many yeah. Milkman albums are there named after you? That's his diss to me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that always cracks me up. <laughs> that's a good shout out. Metaphysical graffiti. Wait, we also forgot to mention that MC Chris accidentally punched me in the genitals. When we were on stage with him that time, we were on stage with Chris and he was, we were talking to him and he went to do a fake grab at my stuff, leaned forward a little too much. He and, punched you in the genitals. Yeah, not, yeah, not purposely, but he accidentally popped me one. Because I, uh, I sang soprano on the next two songs. Wait, 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 wait we, were, we were doing- You're doing this, Mr. Raven? You were on the tour with him. Right. And then, um, and he would do that hilarious thing about you guys with the sock. It kept getting grosser and grosser. You like, we were talking about hanging a sock on the door, but he would defecate into the sock and make lava planet. And, and it's just like, and you're sitting there like turning absolutely bright red because it is a really weird thing he's doing. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, and then oh, I came oh. up on stage to do something with you guys and he leaned over I said so and he leaned over to do like a fake grab at my stuff and and, and lost his balance when we were doing the roommate from hell he'd go yeah. into this gross bit about yeah. me being his roommate yeah but he would he, he said he would amp it up each time yeah and by that was the last show of the tour so it was just graphic it was wonderfully gross it was it was and then it was I think it was a that was near Halloween I think there was a costume party that night yeah you or, came comic con no, was in town he would, no he would do a costume oh that's right he would sure, do a costume right. but I think he had yeah. to luck out that he was in night uh, night Comic Con was in town, so he did the costume part. There are a lot of people in town for Comic Con. Yeah, yeah, come yeah, over yeah. To that one. Yeah. yeah, he, you know, he's done a lot for the nerdcore movement and, yeah. like, like, yeah, Chris, Chris, he's for, for he's a good guy and yeah. he's he's toured a lot. Very funny. Yeah, toured a lot with us and like I'm I'm thankful to have worked with him a lot. Okay, keeping it moving, let's talk about. Uh, so now, so so metaphysical graffiti. This is good for me because I don't really follow the band. I'm not joking. People will ask me questions about the band. I'm like, I don't know. About I know your band? About, yeah, I know stuff about every other band in the world. I know next to nothing about my own band. I don't even have like most, like some people keep memorabilia. I don't have anything. Right. I keep stuff from other bands. Listen. I have like all these, if you see my office, yeah. I have like my friend Rick's colonoscopy. Um, from uh yeah yeah Rick from Mindless Faith we were I did a um a tour with uh Mindless Faith Ego Likeness I, I played keyboards and caustic and I'm trying to remember um uh, Stoneburner is also part of it and I'm going to go out and sing a song uh-huh. uh, called the Fluffer with uh, um with Mindless Faith and okay. but before I go out on stage wherever Rick goes hey listen this is really important. I want you to have this, and it was this colonoscopy, like a photo. Yeah, like like the big, yeah, like and, like like and you uh, have it framed now. Like, or? Well, I have it framed now upstairs. Yeah, but the thing is, I I took it out, and we were playing in DC, and they were opening for us, and I showed the audience. I think it was I don't know if it was them or Ego was opening for us, and I said, and it wound up like in the DC paper, a big thing of his colonoscopy. You holding up was in the like, DC to me paper? that that yes, I don't have any Deb Milkman stuff whatsoever, but I got Rick's colonoscopy. Well, I hope I hope the proofreader checked for semicolons. Hey, yeah, hey, hey. okay, so. <laughs> Metaphysical graffiti. Isn't there a Zeppelin album called Physical Graffiti? There is a Zeppelin album called Physical Graffiti. There is the the cover of that is supposed to parody the cover of it. And the great thing about it was we got to make models. We made the models. Uh, my friend George actually has the models. I think he might have given one back to Dean. But uh, um, yeah, so I like it. Anything I can make models for, yeah. I'm really happy. So I'm like, ooh. So we we made models for that. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's talking. Yeah, and that's I think when you're kind of getting that's kind of like lazy though. You know, when you're sort of parodying other, you know, titles. So, yeah. I yeah. Think, yeah. Well, I've, it I've been clever guilty at the of time. I've been yeah. guilty of uh, You got to call it something. Well, yeah, but you you pull it off better than we do. I don't know. <laughs> and that has smoking banana peels on it, that right? That did have smoking and, banana peels And that it, yes. and Punk Rock Girl were the two videos on Beavis and Butthead. Am I right? I think Beavis and Butthead showed every video we ever did because uh, I would hear about it. Like, I, people, yeah. would go, people would go like, oh, because around that time, 
I was actually just living as a musician, and uh-huh. uh, you know, people, from the, you know, like my neighbor down the hall, would go, "Hey, you're on Beavis and Butthead again." So I yeah. think they did. They showed every video that we would ever put out. I think when they came back, they even got one of the newer ones and showed it. And so. Joe and and Beavis said Joe was the one guy whose video he can beat up. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty good, <laughs> which is great. I think rock and roll should be full of people. That can easily be beat up. You know, I most people can beat me <laughs> I up. Agree. Yeah. I agree. I yeah. agree. You know, rock and roll, like people in rock and roll should either look like the guy that works in the cubicle next to you, uh-huh. or yeah. Or they shouldn't. They should go the other extreme. You know, like I, I always like it when I go to see a band and they're very extreme looking uh-huh. and they but they keep that look off stage. I think it's awesome. If I'd have been right. in KISS, I would have had those I would have had that makeup tattooed on me. I always thought I always thought when Gene Simmons, I was a kid, I thought, oh, when Gene Simmons goes home, the wife has like, you know, the big the right, big right, devil right. things and yeah. the dog looks like that. You know, the kids all Well, that's what's so special special about ICP is that they yeah. don't break character. Don't even yeah. doing interviews, they Live wear it. the makeup. Live I think it. um what was the band? Oh God, I why am I blanking? Uh very satanic band. I War? can't remember the name. Not Guar, no. No, no, no. Um, but they they never broke character. The one guy lived the satanic lifestyle for years. They were the band that oh, try to remember the liner notes were like this little libertine enjoys. <laughs> we have to read them in that right. voice. And so my friend uh, Dave Brookman and I were sitting around reading them one time, yeah. you know, going like, this little libertine went to market. This little libertine. God, why am I blanking on it? Oh, Cradle of Filth. Oh, Cradle yeah. Filth. yeah. Or the Israeli version, Dreidel Filth. Thank you. I'll be here. I'll be here. <laughs> Cradle, I, I played a show in... Uh, yeah. In in Melbourne, a yeah. club show, and the Cradle Filth guys just were at the club. Oh my god, I would have so many questions. I, gave, I knew somebody who I think was married to one of them or dated one of them. I and think. I gave them a shout out from from my stage, and they liked oh my it. God. They liked it. That was cool. I, man. I bet they were. I bet they're super cool. I mean, I know people Very have cool. known them and said they're they're super nice. But one guy actually, he lived that like you know, like if you went over to his house, all the yeah. uh, um, I can't remember if Jen from the Jenna Tortures was married to him or dated him or I I, I don't know. I I have my memory's getting foggy about age. <laughs> So, Soul Rotation, your first record on um, Hollywood Records. Yeah, the first one we had money for. They, what, what, how big was your budget for that I album? don't know yeah. because I'm never interested in that. But yeah. that was the first one where I had my sampler, I still have, that weighs about 1,000 pounds that you, you put floppy disks. No, they're not, they're, they're A disks, not, they're not the B, the old, you know, giant B disks. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, we had that and we lied to the record company a lot. So we would say that we hired, like it would be a flute sound, but the record companies at that time didn't understand sampling. If they heard a flute, they just thought it was a flute. So you'd say so we, we owe said a flute we hired player. a flautist. Yeah, we have yeah. some more money because this guy, he's not going to touch that flute <laughs> unless we give him a hundred bucks. Yeah. So, That's good. And then you would just, yeah, we'd spend that money. So that that generally worked. Yeah, that was the, um, and it was weird because they were super disappointed with it, but we were super happy. That, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was fairly looking back on that record is it's okay but i remember being really happy with it at the time yeah what was the title about though so- oh soul rotation oh yeah okay um around this time i had begun there's a book called high weirdness by mail pre-internet you had to again you had to entertain yourself through the mail and this book was written by a guy from church of subgenius reverend stang oh yeah and it was just a list of weird people you could write to so i wrote to all of them and, yeah. and subsequently went through several girlfriends because no woman wants to live with a guy who's getting crazy mail. And one guy actually cursed me through the mail and he sent this weird curse. <laughs> and my friend Matt Dubin was standing next to me and we both had like so many months of bad luck. We actually had to find somebody to take the curse Is off. Is that us. true? Yeah, it was, a, it was a waitress that actually took the curse off of us uh, in a bar in Milwaukee. Uh, she, she waved around her hands. We were telling her the story. Uh, I had. 
again, it goes back to Milwaukee. We had the string of bad luck and we left yeah. to go on this like mini tour of the Midwest and just crap kept happening. Yeah. And I'm a huge Yankees fan. And I had my Yankees, I had like a Yankees shirt on in Milwaukee uh, and, uh, um, you know, Yankees jersey, I had a Yankees cap and it's the Yankees. And this is like back in the like late 80s, early 90s. So it's like the, the way Bob Yankees, you know, it's the Yankees. And I'm like, holy shit, the Yankees are here. And, yeah. but the Yankees didn't really want to talk to me or deal with me. So I learned a trick in Hawaii, which is if you have a jukebox and Meatloaf's Paradise by the Dashboard Light is on that jukebox. Uh-huh. Put as much money as you can into that jukebox and hit that song over and over. It'll empty out any bar. It'll empty out a bar quicker than if you shout fire. So we went outside and we were drinking. And then we told the waitress the story. The waitress said, okay, well, she goes like, I removed the curse from both of you. And we, of course, we tipped generously. And if things, yes, did get better because psychologically we thought. But so getting back to this, I'm getting all this weird mail. I get right, mail from right, guys right, who would right, always right. predict the end of the world, get it wrong, and then have to send out an email, or not email, send out <laughs> a, a newsletter showing their math, how it's wrong. Like, But I'm pretty sure it's going to end on, and, you know, it'd be wrong. And that was great. So one of these things had a um, crazy mail that I got. Had, oh, there's also people that thought Jimmy Carter was a robot and that he squeaked when he walked. <laughs> and that just insane stuff. Right. And uh, um, and if I ever meet Jimmy Carter, I want to ask him about that. But the uh, um, one of the things was a thing that said, beyond reincarnation, soul rotation. The idea that oh, souls would leap from body to I body. See. And we, again, were sitting around just come, trying to come up with a title. And I had all this crazy mail that I got. And we yeah. thought, it's the title has to be somewhere in the crazy mail. I think it was Dean was laughing at that. He's just oh. like, who ordered this? Who wrote this headline? Soul rotation. Soul that rotation. wow. So there you go. Well, people would say, "Is your song in heavy rotation?" We go, "No, it's in soul <laughs> rotation." Plus the whole Philadelphia soul thing, gambling off, and you know, we we like that. So. Well, and now there's the soul cycle, which is the which is like exercise biking with music. Soul cycle is like a. I could do that if it's if it's like '60s soul music. Yeah, that, yeah. that's why yeah. is there no? That's the perfect music for exercise. Good lord. <laughs> okay, so not Richard, but Dick. And let me ask All you: right, yeah. Is it because? Uh, Richard Nixon was one of the original members of the band? No, it's because there's a guy, I, I forget his last name right now, but um, our, our friend Sully knew him, and he would actually, his name was was Richard, but he didn't like to be called that. So when you met him, he would say, not Richard, Dick. <laughs> he would actually say that. Like, not not ironically, he would actually say that. And he also, he was his term for people who were weird was that person's an agent. That guy's an agent. Oh, yeah. He's, you know, like, like secret government agent or FBI agent. Like, yeah. I'm pretty sure that guy's an agent. So we were like, wow, we need to honor this man with an album. So, yeah, that's so that, we get okay. an EP. It's not quite an album. What? I wanted it to be an album. There was so much stuff laying around for that. It was really good. What about Stoney's Extra Stout, parentheses, pig? Oh, terrible idea. Um, there was a um, long story. There's a guy named Richard Stoney Smith buried in um, Highgate. I, I love Highgate in London, and yeah. um, Sony's grave is shaped like a rock, and he is the guy who invented the process that made Hovis bread possible. Richard, what's Sto- Hovis bread? I Hovis bread is some big bread in England. I've oh, I've actually heard like bands talk about Hovis bread, but I almost got run over by a Hovis truck one day in England in in Eton, and uh, um and so it, we just put it together and we said Stoney's extra stout. Pig, yeah, okay, and this, yeah. I think somebody was yelling pig for some reason. Not not at the police, just shouting pig into the air. Wait, how does it relate to the bread? 
I don't know. Well, he's the Stony Smith is the guy oh, who I see. Yeah. He invented sta- he invented the cracked wheat process okay. that made Hobo say, How would our lives be different without Richard Stony Smith? I, I don't even want to think so about Richard's, it. So Richard's so Stony's extra stout is like a beer. It's a beer made by and I don't know where the pig, pig. comes from. Other I think I believe there was a guy just wandering the streets. Pig, pig. So but so so Roddy, your album yeah. titles become increasingly obscure and mm-hmm. weird. Big Lizard in My Backyard. Okay, I can imagine yeah. that. Eight Year Paisley. That's funny. Yeah, starting to get weird. Yeah. Bucky Fellini, you needed to explain yeah, that. You know, once you need to, yeah, once you need to explain a joke, it's less funny. Yeah. So rotation, not That's Richard the, This is what happens when you get a band and you're- <laughs> It's you're, just so weird. But you're, but you're sequestered together. So the band <laughs> jokes, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I, I have friends who are very intelligent, who have degrees, and but they're in bands. And they're in the van for two minutes and they're laughing at exit number two. Like, <laughs> number two. Uh, right, Or right. like exit 69. Oh, you know, and- it, it's, it immediately makes you a child. And here's the thing. you After a while, like all you have, all your jokes are just in common with these people. Right. It was tough for me when the band was disbanded because like I had all this history. Right. And nowhere. Once we got back together, it was like, you know, we could all immediately understand each other. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. But the, uh, um, yeah, it's it's a weird thing. So naturally, I think as bands go on, uh, Frank Zappa had the whole thing. Yeah. Where all, everything was like basically based on an in-joke from the band. Right. And the in-jokes that... The oral culture and the storytelling like yeah. it reinforces that. Yeah, it does. It's just, you know, and again, it, it's you're isolated. Probably better for bands now because they're maybe less isolated. They uh-huh. have social media; they can film themselves in the van. You know. Yeah. But but for us, we were completely sequestered, and you were in the studio forever. Yeah. You know, so yeah. When you came back yeah. in 2008 and you did the King in Yellow, that's a specific literary reference. That is a literary reference. My wife had. Um, it's a book I recommended to young people for years. My wife had seen a thing called Cigarette Burns on uh, Masters of Horror. And this is when we just got back there and we were working on the album. And um, my wife had said, uh, was was blown away by it. And I said, well, it's like The King in Yellow. It's the idea of, you know, I was explaining to her about the book that you would read that would make you crazy. And and she sent away for a very exact replica of the first pressing of it. So it had all the weird spelling things mm. and all. So that's what she had and read it from. And if you the King of Yellow is absolutely horrifying. I mean, it's really, it's written in the late 1800s. It takes place in New York City in the 1930s. And, you know, like, it, it, Jewish people have been exi- you know, exiled from the city. It's just really creepy. It's like they, they get the, they see Nazism coming. And, they, and, and it's horrifying, uh, the psychological horror, that they understand that these people, there's one story it's told from the perspective, two different perspectives. One of the person looking at the crazy person and the other one's from the crazy person. So the crazy person really believes that the king in yellow is real and that, you know, this crown that he has, which is cardboard, is a real crown. And this other guy is just trying to figure out why his cousin's acting the way. But the yeah. idea is sometimes the king in yellow is a play, sometimes it's a book. So I explained that to my wife and she really got into it. And then I said, we should call the album the king in yellow. And unfortunately for us, about the time it was released was the time the first season of um, oh, uh, True Detective hit, and apparently the King in Yellow was a was a big thing in that. So, mm. yeah. so people were thinking maybe, people- yeah, maybe we knew something. Yeah, yeah. I was that- like, no, we don't know a damn thing. No. <laughs> That's interesting. It's like people that uh, somebody wrote a song about Chekhov, the poet, you know, the the the, yeah. the, 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 the playwright, and somebody thought they were talking about Star Trek. It's the same, yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. But well, I would recommend that book. Young people yeah. would get really weirded out. I would say, like, you know, people in their teens would tell me, oh, what, you know, you have anything you recommend for me to read? And I would say, yeah, you should read The King of Yellow. I've recommended it for years. But I'm like, you won't believe how weird this book is. Yeah. And they would like, yeah, next time you see them, they were changed and not for the better. <laughs> they looked like they were in their 40s. <laughs> what about Pretty Music for Pretty People? Mm. Album I'm the most proud of. Um, 
this is again the thing of my my gift for speaking mm-hmm. to people when I'm hanging out and talking a lot, but actually listening to what they say. So I was uh, um I was at a club one night here in Philly. Uh, it's not really here anymore, and it was like nobody ever went to it, which is why I went to it. Um, Vienna wasn't there that night. There were some people I know, and one guy just went on a rant because he was, you know, we were listening to this really dark music, and he was not happy with the state of, again, like the happy music that was being sold. Like, you know, everybody consume and have fun. Yeah. And he was, uh, um, and he said, I call that, because I don't think we still had um, a thesis for, I like to have a thesis for the album. Yeah. And he, I don't think we had that yet. And he said, I call that pretty music for pretty people. And light bulb went off. So I immediately, bang, whole song in my head. Yeah. And I'm like, I got to go home now, write something. So yeah. I went home and just, you know, just came up with that keyboard part, that weird, you know, I want, I knew right there it should be like a circus. And so then once you had the theme, everything else could begin to fit in. So yeah, yeah, I had yeah. songs laying around for it, but that was like, nothing gelled it until got to that point. And then that was like, that is just, that song just one mean screed about how awful the music industry is. <laughs> <laughs> you are a very honest writer. You and have to be, yeah. Unfiltered. Because I'm not writing for myself. I'm writing for right. people who need that music. There's, right, there's right. lots of people who are out there writing about, you know, isn't it great? I've got this, you know, I've got a Tesla and I've got all this money in the bank, you know. And I can't relate to that. You know, somebody needs to go out and write for, I wish I could relate to it. Um, somebody needs to go out and just write for, the songs I liked when I was growing up was the songs written for the perspective of people who were broke, you know, the, 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 the underdogs. So, yeah, that's. Yeah, well, that stuff is. It's lauded because it's aspirational. I think that's a lot of the hip hop is like this middle class, like sinkhole of like, what's going to make you happy and like all the accoutrements. Which is weird because the original hip hop wasn't, you know, Schooly D, and I just saw Schooly um, a couple, I think like a month or so back. Uh, I actually ran into him twice. And Schooly D's daughter, by the way, very talented. Um, he was at our, our show with the Nerdcore guys at, at um, last year. Really? Oh, my God. Because he knows Schaefer. Oh, man. He is he is. Absolutely, I mean, he knows Megaran. Sorry. He's yeah. a super genius. I mean, he's just... Uh, yeah. um, I knew he knew Megaran. We brought that up myself. My, we, we were PSK. Talking, what's it stand for, PSK, right? PSK, what does yeah. it mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, just... Uh, I, I was super into him growing up in, uh, or, or in my young days. And uh, um, his wife... You know, the way my wife doesn't believe stories about... There's a story... Him and I have been thrown out of a studio once for being silly and um and his wife was like you, miss, you and schoolie d yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we had we, there was a, a studio we were in somebody made the mistake of having schoolie d i went there because they were um doing a um a, a remix of um oh i can't remember what song it was now but um and what happened was they uh, um the was brothers had worked on it and we were doing this extended mix and joe butcher was doing it and schoolie d was in the same studio and he was sitting there waiting for someone. We started talking because I had like drum machines and, you know, and we were talking about actually working together, which didn't happen, but would have been great. Yeah. We had an idea, but somebody came in and said, oh, these guys have to sit here for a while. Let's give them a case of beer. So they set down this case of beer and Schooley and I started putting them down. We're talking. We had great, we had an idea because at that time rap was just starting to get big. Uh-huh. And, you know, and so we had this idea where, and they were homogenizing rap. So this guy from the suburbs with this kid comes into town and he's like, excuse me, houseboy? And the school, he go, you mean homeboy? And he's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, my kids, they really love the rap. They love the, and, and, and you know, Schooly would give them directions to like the worst part of North Philly. <laughs> and that was the idea. And we're laughing, having a good time. And yeah. because we're having fun, we're putting down oh, beers. Oh, this is like a skit you were conceptualizing. Yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah. you know, it was like this whole thing, you know. So I right. wanted to play like nerdy white guy, you know, and I thought it was great. And so- I was a role I was born to play. And so we had, you know, and, and we're putting, I get putting down the beers and there's a, 
I think like a Hooters gold record on the wall. And what, like a compilation Hooters had put out? Yeah, not like a compilation. Like, like you know, like Hooters made the Hooters made a record at that studio, and it was certified the, the, gold. The restaurant? No, not the not the restaurant Hooters. It was a band called the Hooters. Oh, okay, I didn't. That would have been great. Yeah. I was like, this story <laughs> like, is so like girls in there. I forgot there was a restaurant called Hooters. Oh, oh I think that's I think, forgotten. Yeah, uh, that's kind of weird. No, that would have been weird. That's odd. And think about the band, the Hooters, and the restaurant, the Hooters. That's that's yeah, that's a weird. But they uh, there was a band called the Hooters, okay. and they used to have they called that because the guy would play a melodic. Uh, they actually played Live Aid. Um, but the uh, I think uh, wow. Well, they played Live Aid, but the guy running Live Aid was like, "Who the fuck are the Hooters?" But they um, so the Hooters the Hooters play this. Um, they had this gold record up on the wall. Okay, not the restaurant, the band. And they, Schooley goes, we should sign that. <laughs> I'm like, what? Yeah, we should sign that because it'll be up there for 100 years. People will think it's- Nobody yeah. ever notice it. Nobody, and you and I will know it's up there. And I'm like, that's not a bad idea. We take it down. We, <laughs> we write obscene, just the worst stuff in there. And we sign it. Like you know? you're in the band. Like we're in the Hooters. Like I think we right. even like knew some of the guys' names or whatever. So, But I mean, also- I have childlike writing, and I've been drinking. So, I mean, it looked like hieroglyphics. And Schooley writes something, so put it back on the wall. And we're sitting there having a couple And we, we forgot about it, like, top five minutes later. And the secretary walks in, and for some reason, her eyes immediately went up to that. She goes, that is not cool. And she runs out. She gets, like, 80 people all lined up uh-huh. to come in and tell us, that is not cool. They make us clean it off. And, of course, like, this is a weird thing when, like, you're – there was Schooly D who invented gangster rap, but you're the one who looks guilty. You know, like there's no way they were going to look at Schooly and go, you did this because I look super guilty. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, I did it. I'm really sorry. I did. So then Schooly's, um, I guess his wife had heard, had he told her the story and she never believed it. So she was like, wow, you, you actually, that is true. That's kind of odd. I'm like, right. yeah. So I met his daughter. I'm like, yeah, your dad and I were thrown out of the studio. Ask him about it. <laughs> so, we'll, that, so we're talking about how hip hop though oh. is, has this, theme of being aspirational and um yeah they cleaned it up they do that with yeah. everything it's yeah, they, they right. did that with soul music at one point and like the soul music the original soul music stuff was you know it's stuff like freddie's dead you know it was about you know it was about being poor it's about you know drugs it's about and then they cleaned it up and you could kind of hear a wing uh, wingtip shoe tapping in the background you right. kind of hear the guy from thing they did that with uh, um they did it with hip-hop i mean the the largest selling hip-hop album of all time oddly enough is uh marky mark and the funky bunch so they, they, you know, it's the idea of commodifying your descent. They did it with punk rock. You know, punk, you have, you know, you, you wind up with like, you know, Blink-182, you wind up with Green Day, you wind up with sort yeah. of aspirational punk because somebody always goes in and cleans the music up. But do you like Green Day? Don't you think they have some great songs? I don't really know much about them. I, I, I'm sure they're, they're, they're super nice people. We played a show one time and they were the opening band. Think about that. If wow. you, if you, see, you're, you're going to wind up being super rich because if you open for us, you're good. You're fine. You're, you know, you're wonderful things will happen to you. I don't really know a whole <laughs> heck of a lot about their music. It's, it's, uh, uh, I'm sure I maybe have heard like one or two songs. It sounds fine to me. I, yeah. I wish them a lot of luck. I'm sure they're fantastic people, but I'm saying that there's a, a point where, uh, stuff begins to sort of get commodified and you're, yeah. Well, for something to cross over, it yeah. needs to have a yeah. an accessibility, right? Or something. And the best art is the stuff that has that hook, yeah. but also retains that quirkiness. And and yeah. I mean, it's interesting though because your band has had huge commercial success, and but you never had to sell out and compromise. Well, also it had huge commercial success with the song "I Wasn't On," which is one of my favorite things. I I <laughs> occupied the weirdest position in rock and roll and that I'm a member of a one hit wonder band 
but I wasn't on the hit, which is so awesome. Makes me so happy. Um, you didn't mm. play anything We're on eating. that hit? Mm-mm. No, I wasn't even there. But you're in the video. No, yeah, reluctantly. I think I got fired from the video. I was, um, I started wandering around the, uh, that was filmed at the Eastern State. Yeah. And I got lost and started wandering around inside. Well, I was wandering around inside, then I got lost. Yeah, yeah. And, like, the odds of this are a million to one, but the, I finally found a door that led back to where everything was. Uh-huh. And, of course, like, I opened that door and I walked right in the middle of a shoot. You know, they're like, they're filming. I'm like, I'm good. I'm going home now. <laughs> yeah. That, we, Joe was talking about how it was it was weird because you were the lead singer and then this song that he was on was the one that was the hit. Yeah. And then the, the record company wanted me gone. I don't know if he talked about that. No, he didn't talk about oh, that. Oh yeah. They always want the, the angry guy gone. You know, I think I, I only hung on because I think I had Stuart, uh, which was, you know, like a, like a hit amongst angry people. Cause they were, you know, like, yeah. Oh, this is, you know, these are the, the crazy old racist guys in my neighborhood. Uh, and, and it's taking a shot at them, which yeah. is, is fun. Um, always take a shot, never punch down, always punch up. And it's fun to, it's fun to make songs that make fun of racists because racists aren't good at humor. You know what I mean? They're not. It's not a weapon that they have in their arsenal. Racists have terrible jokes that people just go, "What? No." Punching up meaning know. people who are occupying like higher places. Yeah, higher places are people. Yeah, just awful people. You know, when you, when you punch up the hegemony, trying yeah, to puncture yeah, the hegemony. Wanna, yeah, you want to yeah. you want to punch at the patriarchy. You want to punch it. You know, right, right, and right. So, um, yeah, but so there would be things like you know they would have they would be invited to play on like a show and you know, they kind of forget to bring me along. So I'd be like back in the hotel, like, Oh, where, where do I go? Well, you don't really do anything. Cause on they only song. wanted yeah, that yeah, one song. Yeah. But that's, you know, I think the idea was that I would just go away, but I didn't. So what? I think our manager would have been super happy if I had just gone wow, away. Wow. That's yeah. weird. That's yeah. so weird. Well, I don't think it's that weird. He actually wanted to, um, I think he told Joe at one point, if Joe just hung in the band, he would like, you know, help Joe's career. Uh, Joe didn't tell you any of this stuff? Well, <laughs> Joe talked about how you're very creative and great songwriter and how you've kept everyone together. That's and like, nice. Now I'm bad-mouthing him. No, no, no. But, but Not bad-mouthing Joe. No, no, no. Joe was saying, that, but like, to be fair, he didn't want to go into detail about all this on record. He was, oh. he talked, he talked about, he talked about the touring and like what it was like having him be the like the voice of and having like how it was awkward when you go to a venue and there's a picture of him on the poster or mm-hmm. something like that but how it was like the band everyone really worked together it was really necessary but it was weird i think it's like the damn captain sensible i again why i relate to the damn captain sensible had a big hit with happy talk and people would go see the damn expecting your happy talk and they would get these guys up on stage spitting and the same thing and i give joe lots of credit because joe's a brilliant songwriter a great musician much better than i am you know no, I, I give him many props, but I think the idea was, you know, record company is like, oh, this guy's got a kind of, you know, happy hit. And this other guy is, is up on stage dropping the F word every two minutes, which yeah. if you ran a record company, which would you rather have? I know. Yeah. I know if I'm, if I'm looking, if I got kids that got to go to college, that's, yeah, that's where I'm going. But it must've been awkward and it must've been like It was pretty bad, but for me, everything is awkward. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> I can't say, I, I yeah. think stuff like that just fuels my fire more. I think it made me want to write more, like, less commercial stuff. Oh. I actually yeah, wrote right. on the last album, there's that song, The Sun Turns Our Patio Into a Lifeless Hell. And that's because somebody said, at one point, you should write more commercial stuff. I, like, I saw the Sundowner awning ad, ad, and I'm like, yeah, I'll write a theme for that. You know, I'll write an actual commercial. <laughs> that is the, the brave thing to, like, persist on your own terms yeah. in the face of something... Well, there's nothing else I could have done, you know, right, I can't, right, yeah, right. I, did, I didn't, you know, 
I didn't want to depart or anything. And, and it was still kind of fun at that point. Yeah. And it still gave me a, a platform to get out there and, and talk about the stuff that yeah. I like to talk about. And, yeah. you know, every, you know, people in the audience that couldn't sing, they needed a hero too. Not everybody can sing and play guitar and be talented like Joe. Right. You know, some people, not everybody can be nice like Joe. Somebody has to be evil and dark like me. You two are you, yin and yang. It, it is. If you watch the stage, it's great yeah, because the people yeah. on Joe's side of the stage, they'll help you move. You know what yeah. I mean? If you call them, I'm moving. Can you, can you help me? And they'll say, yeah, the people on my side of the stage will help you move a body. <laughs> like, take it out by the airport and dump it out there. Nobody ever looks. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's yeah, good. That's, that's the way I do. I literally, it is literally the yeah. light and dark when you want. Yeah. yeah. Can we talk about Dave? Yeah, sure. Of course we can, because I love talking about Dave. Yeah. I'm not, people think that you, they're always like, they broach that as if they're like, you know, like, can we talk about that time? But blam, mine blew your head off. And I'm like, no, it, Dave was super funny. Yeah. And it's something people don't get outside the band. Yeah. I This is going to sound horrible, but it is true. One of the funniest events I ever went to was Dave's funeral. And Dave would have loved that. Mm. You know, because we were, Dave was a funny guy, did a lot of funny stuff, and we were laughing all the way at the stuff he did through the funeral, which sounds awful, but it is, you know, how I'm sure he would have liked to have been celebrated. Joe you know, talked about his prank calls. He oh, was, my God, yeah, yeah. I would go on a date, and I would come back at, like, 3 or 4 in the morning to the Milkman right. house, and Dave Love would be up at night, like, on the phone, crank calling people. Because, you know, this is back before they could easily trace right, people. Right. And they were elaborate. <laughs> Like they were just, I don't even know if they if they could be classified. They're more like performance art than crank calls because there'd be these, you know, large things where he would call and he would say like, uh, um, he go, I'd be down, coming down through the, uh, through the basement, you know, and Dave would be like, oh, hey, Ron Nielsen, can you ask this guy if his refrigerator's running and then see, like, like you're a little kid. I'd be like, okay, is your refrigerator running? You better catch it and hang up. Then Dave would call them back and pretend to be the guy's father. And then, pretend to be furious. Yeah, he'd be like, he'd like, excuse me, did you just get a crank call? Well, first the guy on the other end was picking up like, listen. And he'd go, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm the father. I just caught my son right, doing right, that. Right. He gave me a, another number before. This is, and, and the guy would be like, and then Dave would go into like basically how he was going to punish his son. And it would be a draconian thing. And then the guy would try to talk him out of it. He'd be like, let me tell you right now, buddy, I've got a phone book rolled up and I am ready to teach him a lesson. And like, it would be... The worst was he, we would get people who would come to the house trying to like sell us things, or we would get like uh -huh. or, or religious people trying to like sell us their religion. And like religious people, Dave would just get like a copy of Catcher in the Rye and try to convince them that he <laughs> ate a lunch every day that was going to send him to heaven. <laughs> and they just wanted to get out of the house. A hey, um, there was an insurance guy one time that Dave told that he. Uh, he might have to pay a little bit more for insurance because he had a hobby of skydiving. And the guy goes, well, yeah, that 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 you're going to have to pay a little bit more. And remember, <laughs> this guy knocked on the door selling yeah. insurance. Yeah. And Dave's like, well, yeah, you have to understand, I every time I jump out of a plane, I use a smaller and smaller parachute. Soon I will need no parachute at all. <laughs> but the greatest Dave one thing ever. <laughs> this, is, this is my favorite. Yeah. We were walking through the University of Georgia one time. We were going to be, do a radio show. And we're coming back. And Dave sees a line. And if Dave saw a line, he would get in the line. So we get in this line, and we wound up being part of the University of Georgia Freshman Orientation Program. <laughs> they take us into – yes, it's, wor it's worse than you can imagine. They take us into this big, um, like, auditorium. And they're like, okay, everybody, first you have to fill out these forms. Otherwise, we won't have the sketches. And Dave is, like, pounding us like, I want sketches! 
violence got you. And so everybody's looking at him, right? They're like, this is not not good. This man is clearly has a problem. So hey, at one point, there's a guy sitting next to him. And he puts his hand on the guy's knee and goes, goes I can tell you're not like the others. <laughs> like, you know, just like speaking these weird alien voices. So, um, wait, sketches of what? They do, they, they would come out and use comedy sketches. Oh, oh, so oh, yeah. Oh. So, but they gave us, first they gave us four. Now, Dave asked this guy, he goes, Dave, Dave goes, for say, like to say, he saw this film called Iceman. He was obsessed with this guy, would say the name Peter, like, Peter. So he goes, My name is Peter. What's yours? So the guy tells him his name and whatever. So Dave can see this guy's name on this form. You had to fill this thing out. It was like a questionnaire. They give you a lot of freshman orientation. They want to kind of weed out people who might have some psychological difficulties. Oh, okay. So it's like, you know, you would check the box for, do I think the people on the news are making up the news? So Dave is checking everything and I'm watching him do it. Right. And he's checking everything that is completely insane. Right. But he's leaving the name off. Right. So then they say, okay, now everybody pass the forms. To the right. So remember, this guy's sitting to Dave's left. His form has to go to Dave. Dave takes his form. And puts the guy's name. Takes the guy's name and puts it on the form that he has. And then pockets the guy's form. So I imagine this poor guy got like a visit. He would just do stuff like that because he, um, <laughs> when he was a student and poor, he would have to amuse himself. So he yeah. would, you know, he would amuse himself by taking like ketchup packets and watching the trolley run the move. I learned a lot about amusing myself from Dave. Yeah. So it's impossible to talk about him without cracking up. And and again, on top of that, he was very, very smart. He had a degree in uh, Eastern European economics, which yeah. is, he actually read The Economist, which to me is amazing. You know, I, I majored in poli sci. I, I never, I don't think I had, uh, you know, a subscription to The Economist until I was well into my like late 30s. So. Yeah. Wow. So he's a brilliant guy and, mm-hmm. and a very fun guy to tour with. Yeah. And when, did you see any signs that maybe he was suffering or- Oh, I hadn't seen him yeah. in a long time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and this is why your song Twenty Three I always I, I always really liked. You know, it's um because you don't really see it. And he um his mother had passed away, he was close to her, and I didn't know what to say. I think I, I called and said, like, you know, if you want to talk but I'm not good in any of those situations. But you can't blame yourself. You don't know. And yeah. oh I didn't see it. I, nobody saw it. If anybody saw it, we would have done something. But we uh we knew he wasn't happy that he really couldn't play bass anymore. He had tendonitis. Uh, I told him at one point, I was like, look, I'll you know, rig something up, you know, some sort of keyboard or something or something. You can trigger it. But he didn't he didn't want to do that. Um, you know, this is we, we actually had not seen each other for a while, but we saw at uh, they were they took a bunch of horrible Milkman videos, just awful crap. They made a thing called Philadelphia and Love. Don't don't buy it. Don't pay for it. Uh, and we did the uh, um, the commentary track. Oh, right. for it. The commentary track for it is, is hilarious. Might be worth it for that. We were like, why do we do this? Why do we make the, this is embarrassing. Please stop. <laughs> but, um, so it was really, really good to hang around. And I thought we might be playing back together after that, but we weren't, but, uh, it wasn't too long after we did that. That, uh, yeah, but he, you know, he, he liked playing bass, but he had to go from, you know, having this sort of secure life to, and, and it's a tough transition to working like a day job. You know, and you don't have a lot of, well, you have skills, but you don't have a lot of readily transferable skills. You've been riding around for a decade in a, you know, in a van playing shows and that's, that's your living. You make your rent, you do that. Right. And, and I think he went and like, you know, showed up at like a chicken place to work. And he, he had asthma, he had a lot of physical problems too. So he, you know, again, we, we didn't see it coming, but maybe in, in retrospect, we, we should have paid more attention, but it's, it's always easy to say, I should have done this or should have done you taking a break, right? At yeah, that we, point. yeah, yeah, because we, it wasn't the idea was if you don't have the people in the in the band, um, you know, then it's um, 
why do it? And Dean wanted to, you know, have kids and, 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 you know, lead like a normal life, which I understand. I think I went to the same meeting. I was getting ready to quit too, but it wasn't fun. Yeah. If it's not fun, just stop. Um, that yeah. was Johnny Rotten's great line about Kurt Cobain. You know, if it's not fun, stop. And so I think I was going to that meeting to quit or, or, or you know, just ask to take a break. And um, now if we'd have been smart, we'd have just stopped touring and made records, but we're never known for being smart. And, so we got to the meeting and Dean basically said, you know, I, 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 I don't want to do this. And there was talk about using another drummer live or whatever, but yeah. it just never felt right. And it's, you know, so we, we were on like, we took like a 16 year break. A long break. Yeah, a long break. Yeah. yeah. During that time, I, there's so much more I could have, I should have done. But yeah. <laughs> Joe talked about that, how kind of how like Dean was the first to say it, but everyone was kind of thinking it. Everyone's definitely thinking it because yeah. of Stoney's Extra Stout, not a great album. I don't think I showed up for much of it. And in a way, you're ripping off fans when you're doing that. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah. And, and that felt bad. And everybody had, it, it was just, we needed a break and nobody knew how to say it. Because we're not good at saying these things. Right. As a, you know, the line like, "Now things got so bad, somebody almost said something." And so we, but it was rough on Dave because Dave didn't know. He thought we were just going to just keep doing this. To him, um, it's weird for as talented of a guy was, as much as he loved music, he saw it as a job. He saw it as you know, like, oh well, this is like he was actually I think at one point going to write a book about like the economics of it. But um, mm. I uh, um, and I feel bad because I talked him out of that. I'm like, well, people will see us as a company, not as a. I kind of wish I particularly after Amanda Palmer wrote her book about the economics of how she managed to make money doing what she does. Sure, sure. Um, I think that book would have been way ahead of its time. But uh, And also, I mean, there aren't not a lot of musicians that were as smart as he was that could have written that kind of thing. So Yeah. But Did, yeah, he didn't, he didn't, he was really bummed about that because we were all like, he didn't know. I think we were in a car headed somewhere because we were using cars, I think, for that one tour. And he was like, well, when we did, and we're like, Joe and I are like, well, we're not going to replace. This is like the last time out. I didn't think he saw that coming. So. Oh, because you had had the meeting and, and you knew we were going to break up. Well, we knew, Joe and I knew, but yeah. I think I think Dave just thought, well, we, I think you've been talking about maybe, you know, using a, a live drummer sure, and, sure. and having Dean play on records. But we were just like, oh, why, why do this? And not only that, at this point, I mean, the shows weren't that great and, you know, yeah. you just, you so you burn out quickly from it. Yeah. And having label, changing labels and like. Yeah, there like was, there, there was, again, you know, you get these sort of bubbles that burst. So at one time there was, a, you know, an, um, Chris Conley, who was in the Revolting Cox, writes about it in his book. There was a lot of money in, in underground music at one point. Sounds weird for underground music. But, you know, you were playing bigger places, bigger festivals. And around the time of like hair metal and rap and, you know, was getting big and stuff, that, that bubble kind of burst and, and that went away. Yeah. Or the Nirvana right. bubble. Nirvana killed my career is the uh, the line there's a guy on TV <laughs> uses. So. Would you remember what where you were when you heard about date? What, yeah, I was date? at work and I thought he pulled it. I thought it was a joke. I was. Uh, oh, my God. I saw it on CNN. Because like, I think I wasn't answering emails or anything. We were all still getting along. And actually, um, yeah. we would all go to the media. <laughs> our reunion shows were going to the media flea market. <laughs> like, so sometimes all four of us would be there all together, you know, like going around shopping and people like, that's that's the dead milkman, but yeah. they're they're not together. They're just looking for bargains. At a, yeah. it, it made them sad, but it made them wonderfully sad. Yeah. So um, I was at work. I was working for a pharmaceutical company again in IT, and I saw C it was on CNN. It was on uh, the um, CNN website, wow. and I thought David faked his death because I wasn't answering mail sure. or phone that day. And I thought, oh, that's brilliant. 
that is the best fake death ever. Best prank ever. Yeah, kudos to you. Yeah, because he's been pranking people forever. Yeah. I've never seen the body. For all I know, he is probably still alive somewhere. The ultimate prank. Yeah, I had to write a, we had to write like a oh. bio of the band one time, and I actually said he was still alive living in Serbia. <laughs> like, what was it like two two children and 16 wives or something? In November of that year, you played the reunion, like the charity show at the truck, right? Like after yeah. he passed. Yeah, we played two of them. There was a um he gave his money to an orphanage in Serbia. Wow. It was one of the one of the um charities. And first they didn't want the money because he had committed suicide. And it, and it's a uh, um the orphanage was ran by run by a group of monks. And I guess, you know, like, oh we can't take money from a suicide. But then they found out how much money we raised. Yeah. And they were and I think the orphans probably live better than I do. Like they probably had like Xbox. <laughs> I mean, we raised a lot of money. Yeah. The truck they were fantastic. Everybody volunteered their time. Yeah, that's you know. awesome. Yeah. I, I still hear about things these days where somebody will play a benefit and they expect to be paid. I'm like, I don't understand that. Right, like, right, you know, right, 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 right. Come not on, the, come on. The, the sick guy gets his name on the poster, damn it. That's my friend Rob's joke. Whenever he hears about somebody getting paid for a benefit, he's like, come on, why, why, why don't we get paid? The sick guy gets his name on the poster. <laughs> Let's talk about Burn Witch Burn. Yeah. So when did you start this project? Is that I started it when I was in the Milkman because I was just not having fun in the Milkman, and yeah. I my I had uh, I didn't know my wife could sing and play violin when I wow. met her and married her. Yeah, so that that was a, that was like a Superman moment. Like Clark Kent takes off the hat and glasses, and we were at a picnic and we ran into my friend Wild Bill, who was a, a musical genius, could yeah. play everything. He grew up on Cape Breton Island, so he played like bazooki, mandolin. I've been listening to um, at that point music was again we talked a bit earlier about when. One thing is dying and another thing is coming up. Yeah. So grunge in that, which I've never been really interested in, that was kind of dying. But when stuff like that falls apart, you get people don't know what to do. So all these fissures happen. So we begin to get bands like Rasputina, who I love. You know, right. three women playing cello. You begin to get all these like uh, um, you got the Dresden Dolls. You got so there was weird instrumentation and stuff. Stuff I I really enjoy Irish music and Gypsy music. So I thought, well, let's do that, and that's how that band came about. But again, it was just experimental it's just gothic like, pogues style yeah gothic country yeah, yeah. It was the idea of the uh, um the sort of american gothic flannery o'connor sort of yeah i love that band that, so yeah much. i saw him once yeah they're i've awesome. seen him a bunch of times yeah. I, we wanted to play a show with him but my laura couldn't do the thing at the last minute and i was really really bummed uh, it was going to be a show up in, in new york but uh, um yeah she had some issues that she couldn't play it and i was like no my one chance to play with rasputina just flew out the window but you still have a chance, or did they break up? No, they didn't break up. I should, yeah. should, I should re, yeah, I should, I should open that door again. I, I think she's absolutely amazing live. The stuff she says in between songs is hilarious. She was talking at one point about how everybody in her neighborhood, she was living in Brooklyn at that time, and they were all very recycling conscious and and, and everything, and they were telling her that she should have a home birth. And she's like, but I showed them. I had a home cesarean. <laughs> and, like, and later on, she goes to play this instrument. She goes, I'm not very good. It's like this banjolin thing. She's like, I'm not very good at playing this, so I'm a little bit nervous. But not as nervous as I was when I had my home cesarean. <laughs> You're like, oh. Yeah, yeah Rasputina is, I'm so glad they exist. My friend Umwoman uh, had played, I think, in, in Rasputina for a bit. Yeah. You, you like we, we talked about earlier, yeah. gothic music, yeah. industrial music. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna name some of my favorite projects, right. and let's see if you like them too. Okay. Or would you, uh, VNV Nation. I'm a huge. I just saw VNV. I've seen VNV a bunch of times. I just saw VNV at the um, Spaghetti Transfer, is what we call it. It's a union transfer, but it used to be a spaghetti warehouse. Oh, yeah. um, I've seen them. A bunch. They were when I first got back into playing. 
I was at a VMB show and I was watching. If you watch what I do on stage, my movements, they're just copied from Ronan from VMV Nation. And uh, somebody actually, ah. we were playing a show in like Kansas City and VMV had been there a week before. The guy who ran the, the, the venue was like, you know, there's a band here and this guy moved. And, and I'm like, yeah, I, I saw them. And I thought, if I go back at this, what should my stage persona be? How should I? And I thought, yeah. he never stops moving. He uh. never. So if you see me, that's why I never stop moving. I yeah. lifted it whole whole from him and we cover um control which is a lot of fun so i, I really um and they're very positive yeah and they have the song um illusion which will just snap your heart which is all about uh sophie lancaster who was stomped to death um it's a horrifying uh thing i so, don't know that story oh so there's a young lady named sophie lancaster this is about 10 years ago maybe more than it happened probably more than that probably close to in her 30s now but she was in her 20s she was a goth uh in um Somewhere in England, try to remember exactly where, but her and her boyfriend were these goth weirdos, and they were at a park, like a, like a local uh, park, and a bunch of uh, um, I you know I I, I don't want to say heavy metal kids, but a bunch of like you know like uh, like hard rocking type guys um, stomped her and her boyfriend. He survived, but she went into a coma and died. And her mother, instead of Basically, you know, demanding that the UK bring back the death penalty. She started the Sophie Lancaster Foundation, mm. which teaches young people that you shouldn't, you know, be accepting of people who are different. And I think that's that's a great honoring of her legacy, which is yeah. you know, from what I've, everything I've heard about her, that's what she she would have wanted. But they um, their song, there's a heartbreaking. Somebody made animation of you know what happened to her, and they set it to illusion. And wow. I, I dare you. It's, it's like Sage Francis's, you know, make them purr. I dare you to make it through that without without weeping. So, yeah. I love their literary references. They have that one song where he referenced uh, Julius Caesar. Yeah. That, and I start the podcast referencing that same uh, speech, the Mark oh. Anthony speech. Oh, wow. So, anyway. that And I um, also love VNV's Nation's chord structure of their synth chord. Everything that they do is, is and it's weird because, uh, you know, I mean, they use an access virus. They, I actually knew a guy who, uh, my friend Gabriel, played on tour with them. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and, and we would have discussions because that's actually how I met him. We, we did Control one night, like, out in the West Coast, and uh, he was there, and he's like, hey, you played, you came up after the show, so you played my part that I play live. I'm oh, like, wow. what? And you play, yeah, yeah. The, the stuff is really, and I, I don't know if Ronan actually has a lot of, musical background or if he just took to the equipment and and yeah it was you know every now and then that happens when somebody just bonds with something yeah sort of like daniel ash with the way he plays guitar is not the way most people play guitar but it's perfect you know so That's yeah cool. I, i'm uh, and again they're super positive the yeah, new album is really good yeah so what about switchblade symphony i don't know a lot about them they used to be yeah. always around in the day i think yeah. there's a i think i played a song by them recently Did they have the song rain i can't remember yeah they have rain rain yeah. keeps falling yeah. on down yeah that's them. there we go for those of you somebody should sample me that you know that and put that rodney sings switchblade symphony they were good i remember um san francisco band i think they were, they were yeah. yeah. They were around a lot. They were uh try to remember the other band that was always like that. You probably mentioned them, but yeah. There's always a band I think of in the same breath with them. What about Wumscut? Wumscut were Wumscut are 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 just hilariously fun. Yeah. I don't think they've made a great record in a while, but the earlier stuff was was a lot of fun. And you still hear people play them in clubs. But yeah, the, it began, I think it, it for them it began they got trapped in there where they couldn't really expand. That was a lot of industrial and gun. Yeah. yeah, because it, you can't even change your hair. <laughs> you, you, you know, to, to cross over, it had to be the Nine Inch Nails with the hooks and yeah. like the pop. Yeah, the Crux Shadows is the band I always think of in the same sort of vein for some reason, vein as um, 
Switchblade Symphony. Switchblade Symphony, yeah. Um, how about Combi Christ? Hmm. I love early Combi Christ. Not yeah. so much now. <laughs> yeah. The, um, actually played my friend Bill, who we talked about earlier. Uh, him and I played a, a set with the guitars from Combi Christ. I happened to walk into Fergie's. Wow. Point, and Bill was Bill was just playing Fergie's like, yeah, just, I'm playing today with this guy. I'm like, Bill, that's the guitarist for Combi Christ. Yeah. Oh yeah, I heard he was in a band. <laughs> Bill's just like, you know, like outside of all that. I'm like, yeah. So he's like, "Well, come up and do a song with us." I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. Skinny puppy. Skinny puppy, I love. I just saw Skinny puppy live on the. Uh, um, I think it was called the I versus I tour. B and B were supposed to be part of that originally. Wound up being them in front two four two, and that's oh, wow. that's where the saying came from that we use in Philly all the time, which is get there early to see Youth Code because Youth Code were like the first band on the bill, and everybody kept saying, "Get there early to see Youth Code." So. For months after that, no matter what the show was, we go, well, you're going to want to get there early to see Youth Code. Yeah, and Skinny <laughs> Puppy good. are, and my friend Stephanie is a huge Skinny Puppy fan. Like, she's seen them, I think, like, every show that every time they've come through, she's been there. So, yeah. And that show was great because it was based on Fukushima. So they have uh. that, there's that, yeah, interesting um, element that they have of theatricality, which is, you know, and everybody in that band has, like, their assigned role, and they do it well, which is yeah. awesome. And they were, they kind of were one of the first older bands. To, they grew out of yeah. like a, uh, um, it's weird. If you hear the band that they'd been in before uh, out of uh, um, Vancouver, it was a very like poppy sort of synth type band. And they, yeah. they began to, I think they, again, latching to the equipment when they began to hear these Mirage samplers and, oh, wow, I can do this with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like ministry every day's Halloween yeah. to Stigmata. Yeah. yeah. Right? That yeah, transition. Yeah. yeah. Or even ministry before that, because they had originally tried to sell, and I uh, heavily recommend the uh, uh, Chris Conley book. They originally tried to sell Al Jorgensen as sort of like Boy George. And, and yeah, which right. is weird. Also, he was dating Amy Mann. I have so many questions. Al Jorgensen? <laughs> yeah, I actually just saw, for the first time I saw Ministry a couple weeks ago, uh -huh. my friend Patrick was like, hey, I've got tickets to see Ministry. You want to see him? I'm like, let me think. Yes. And I went to see him, and the show was amazing because they did a bunch of new stuff first, about 45 minutes worth. So you lose a lot of the audience. Right, and, right. and so people were leaving, and then they came back on stage after they were done, and they did all the hits, like 45, except for Every yeah. Day is Halloween. They did right. 45 minutes of the hits. So it was a great show. Al Jorgensen's brother is a, is a teacher in, in down in Florida, and I'm actually <laughs> going to do a workshop at his school next week. Oh, really? Isn't that crazy? Now, I didn't even know he had a brother. I would have so yeah. many questions for yeah. him. He's got he's a, he's he's got some crazy stories about his brother. I bet he does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he better. <laughs> okay, so this is this so KMFDM. Are you uh, a fan? Yeah, KMFDM again, another great band that I loved. I've seen them live um recently, fairly recently. Um another band I, I wish that they, they do interesting stuff. Um I wish they would do a bit more interesting stuff, but I'm not gonna put them down because you know uh, uh you know, megalomaniac stuff like that is just absolute genius. Juke, point, juke joint Jezebel. Juke joint Jezebel, are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. Help us, save us, put us away. <laughs> Money, power. <laughs> uh, what about, what about, let's see. Did you ever listen to Bile? You know that industrial yes, band? Yes, Bile are fantastic. Actually, yeah. Remove the Head by, by my friend Rickett. I played yeah. it, uh, he played in a version of Bile, like a touring version. Remove the Head is such a great song. I'm getting Chris, Christoph is going to be on the podcast. What? He, oh God, he's my friend. Yeah, he was on the. He came to my last show in All Brooklyn. Right. Okay, ask Christoph about the time he was hanging out here. Okay, and his wife Laura and my wife started drinking around seven at night, 
and they were still drinking and laughing at like 7 a.m. Christoph and I were like, the hell with this, go to sleep. <laughs> He's crashed out on the couch, I go upstairs. And they, I think there was like long past the sun. Yeah, he is super great guy, super nice. His yeah. uh, current project, uh, Distorted Retrospect, absolutely amazing. Um, it, it, and live, he kills it. I saw him live, yeah. you know, I saw Das Eek. Uh, he opened for Das Eek and I thought, man, I feel bad for Das Eek because following this guy ain't gonna be easy. <laughs> no, he's an amazing performer. Yeah, really good. I'm so glad you're interviewing him. He's going to be awesome. He's you just... know, he's on Lars Attacks, the song um, uh, Judas Priest. I didn't know that. And, and that song is based on Golgotha by Wumska. Well, he was in the audience tonight. I went and saw you. I was going to point him out. I should have probably done that. I didn't know he was. Yeah, because we all went to see it was you and uh, uh, Mega Ran. And yeah, he came with us. So we were all bouncing around the city that night from show yeah. to show. I yeah. forget who he was going to go see somewhere. And so we went there and oh, they went there and then popped back and did that. So yeah, it was, a, it was a night of bouncing around the city to see bands. You are connected. So we could keep naming all yeah, these it's, it's, bands, but it's interesting how- I call it the yeah. DMCU. It's like the, it's like the Marvel comic universe, right, but like right. it's a DMCU <laughs> and because everybody is interconnected and you can draw these lines to so-and-so. And then sometimes it's great because some, you know, somebody you know, will introduce somebody, but the person you're introducing them to has known them for 10 years. Like, oh yeah, I know him. Yeah, so, yeah. right, right. We were all, we were all connected yeah. between yeah. genres, but that also, Roddy, is because you're lo you love so much music. You're just a fan of music. You're it, not stuck in one thing. You shouldn't be stuck in one thing because, no. you know- I always like, again, like I would hear stories about David Bowie who just turned up, you know, in these little clubs in, in you know, when he in New York and stuff. And they, oh, look, it's they did it before also in England. Like, oh, look, it's David Bowie. I always yeah. think that that's the way to be. Yeah. That's you. You're the David Bowie of yeah, Philadelphia. I try to be the David. Yeah. I'm without the talent and the intelligence of David Bowie. But I do have but, the, David, you I have the, the David Bowie is app on my phone, which I heavily recommend. That's a great, great app. You have David Bowie in your house. Which That's is like, right. Yeah. Oh, we went to his his exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum. I went too. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I have that poster in the uh, in the other room. For so the, is yeah. the app based on the exhibit? It's based on the exhibit, and yeah. it's augmented reality. So you have oh, like, yeah, it's good. Cool. Yeah. Although it makes your phone, at least my phone, it makes my phone heat up a lot. Which <laughs> oh. is, it might be Bowie's spirit is trapped in there. Uh, I was when I saw that because again I was what we were talking about how the uh, um, the Berlin trilogy really influenced me when I was younger, and they had Cynthia. The, the, the EMS synth from that they used. Oh, wow. And so Vienna's going around, and I'm staring at it. And Vienna came back, and she's like, are you going to move? And I'm like, what? She goes, you've been looking at this thing for 20 minutes. I'm like, oh, that's... <laughs> like, And I feel bad for other people. Yeah. Or maybe they didn't care about the synth or whatever, but yeah. I was just standing there like, oh. I'm, you know, because you don't think you're going to see this stuff. Right, And they, right, had, right, they right. had TVC 1.5. They had the, the, the poodle from when he did... When he did that on Saturday Live, again... You know, now when you talk to young people, they're used to like Lady Gaga or they're used to um, uh, uh, Miley Cyrus, people being outrageous, you know, but there was nothing like that when I was younger. So we were watching, you know, I'm in my mid to late teens or whatever, and probably mid teens. And we're, we got Saturday Live on, Bowie's going to be on, we're yeah. psyched. And there he is in a dress and they've got this remote controlled dog. And uh, it was life changing. It was like, wow, you can actually make something very visual and very different. Yeah. Which I thought was was great. And I, I never thought I'd never see that. So just seeing like, you know, and I knew because I sort of peeked ahead, you know, I looked online and I, I knew that the, you know, the, the remote control poodle was going to be part of the show, but I was just like, still like, wow, that's, that's cool. Yeah. Is the exhibit traveling or was it like a one-time thing? They took it everywhere. It started, yeah. it started at the Victoria and Albert, I think. And he was still alive when it started. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, and, and he died probably through, but the, uh, um, 
for the Brooklyn exhibit, they had lots of stuff they couldn't get. So they had stuff from Philadelphia because, you know, he he worked here at Sigma Sound. Yeah. And so they had, you know, they and they would get so that one and also stuff because he lived in New York City. So they had even more stuff at the Brooklyn one than they had at the uh, other. But they took that. It was in Chicago. They took it all over the world. I was jealous when people I knew saw it in Chicago. I took a day off work, and Vienna and I took the train up to New York, and we kept hitting. We had also we had the uh, um, the tickets, the lightning bolt tickets, because Dean had told us oh, to do this. Right. So you got we got to go around, but we were there so early there was no line anyway. Oh so, yeah. yeah. So we got to rush in, and then we went down. We had drinks, and Vienna had a fame. Or a couple of those, they had belly influence cocktails in the bar at the really? uh, at the Brooklyn Museum, and I wanted her to get and drink a bunch of the Fames so I could go fame, 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 fame. <laughs> and I drank a couple of thin white Dukes, which were really good, yeah. Because you have to do that. You have to. I had like for for dinner, they had these dinners were ridiculous things. Like I had the uh, diamond dogfish and chips, and you know you have to you give into it. Bowie, be silly, yeah. <laughs> Bowie would have laughed. You you have always had good cultural recommendations, and you have a radio show. Rodney Anonymous tells you how to live through Why Not Radio, right? Yep. Why why not? Yep. Can we talk about that? Yeah, legally, I'm sure we can. Yeah, I don't (laughs) think there's any. I don't think there's any injunctions against me talking about it. How long you been doing that? Oh my god! You know what? I got to be coming up on. I think I started in like 2004, maybe. Wow. Uh, maybe maybe a little bit later. Maybe 2014. Maybe I'm off by a few okay. years. Yeah, I've been doing it. I think I had like a seven-year I got to check in. I don't know. I started doing it whenever, whatever year APOC came out by um, by Ivardensphere. Because I remember it all linked around the same time. Um, and Ivardensphere's APOC, by the way, I claim is sort of the spiritual father of pretty people. But um, so, yeah, I, I got that because we went and did a, uh, the band was, you know, back together, obviously. And we went this radio station, why not? We did this on air thing. And they said, I was just talking. They said, Hey, do you want a radio show? And I was like, yeah, sure. Who, who says no? And then the, I don't know. I, they thought probably going to be punk and which I consider stuff. I played punk, yeah. but, um, you know, I was like, well, and what's well, going to be this dark, you know? And so I, I get to play a lot of music. Um, I, I wouldn't say I get to play music by my friends. A lot of people became my friends later on, but I, you know, if you're just playing music by your friends, that's kind of weird. So, but yeah. I play. It's just weird. Occasionally, I'll play something and I'll know the person, which is odd for me. But the uh, I played your stuff on there because I did a whole thing about robots one time. I did a whole set. Oh, yeah. of, I did a whole set of robot songs. That's awesome. And the next one, every okay, now and then, I'll do like a theme show. The next yeah. one I'm doing is obscure um, bands from the early '80s. So it's going to be um, like Nervous Gender. Um, and, uh, um, there's band in Philly called Crash Course in Science that were fantastic. Experimental products were great. Executive Slack. So I'm taking, uh, scooping up a bunch of weird stuff from the early eighties. And there's a band I just discovered called Slime because I, I, I was on Bandcamp. Bandcamp's fantastic. Yeah. And I saw this thing for like, oh, I, it was like no wave section. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, no wave. And there's a band called Slime and they have a song called Dial Up Internet is the purest form of internet. I'm like, how can you not? How can you not? It's like a buck to download that. How, who doesn't want that? That's good. And it is. It is everything. It was the B side is called uh, uh, male pattern baldness. So I'm like, who doesn't want? You know, who says no? How would you define the original no wave movement? Um, the original no wave, I think it was was out of boredom. There's a band called um, the Stickmen. The original no wave was just again. It was it it, it was pre punk in a way, uh-huh. and it was just people who moved to the city who were doing weird art stuff. And again, because you, there were no bands that would play a house party or whatever. They, you know, okay, well, we need entertainment. We're having a party. We need entertainment. Well, I have a saxophone. I have drums. I have, and that's how these 
bands all came about, and then yeah. eventually they would find places to let them play. Yeah. Like, I remember seeing King Missile in like 98, that his drummer, his kick drum was like a cardboard box. And yeah. Someone mm-hmm. was playing like a violin. Like yeah. that, that King Missile to me always kind of felt like part of that movement. Yeah. I think they're definitely influenced by No Way. Here in Philly, we were lucky. There's a band called The Stick Men that Joe and I worshiped. Yeah. And I still worship to this day. Uh, and I was lucky. I got to play the young lady who was like, I say lucky because it was a benefit for her because she got uh, cancer. But uh, we played a, um, another project I did played a, a benefit for her. And I actually got to play like a hurdy-gurdy at it and everything um, and do my impersonation of the singer for the Stickmen. But the Stickmen really made us want to be in a band. They, yeah, they wow. Were, they were just so bizarre and so out there and so different than everything else. And they were sort of no wave. The, the no wave stuff is absolutely amazing because it's, it's skewing everything. You know? Yeah. Would you think, but would a band like Ian Struzan, Zende Newbouton be like that? Like That's you- a good question. Is that weird noise or Throbbing Gristle? Throbbing Does, Gristle, yeah. Throbbing Gristle is, they consider themselves in sort of first industrial. And I love Throbbing Gristle. Yeah. And, and fascinated by Throbbing Gristle and collect Throbbing Gristle stories. And I would love to, I would love to meet Cozy Fanny Tootie. I bet she'd be, and she has a book out I need to read. I don't usually oh, read wow. rock and roll books. But, um, you know, that's a weird, that's on that great cusp, because we're talking about the cusp right. of when, you know, sort of stuff is dying away and people are coming up with interesting stuff. That that would that would be in a way a no wave band. They didn't probably sure. consider themselves. But that's that whole thing of look, we got, you know, here's here's a guitar that's missing four or five strings. You know, like I guess the B fifty twos in a way started that way. Again, it was just house party stuff. And, you know, these bands just started it to do that. And then they were like, people were like, well, we should just take this around. But there, none of yeah. those people ever expected to get famous. Right, I tried right. Button were amazing because of just the sort of transgressive nature. They, at one point they were playing, um, I think, I can't remember, the Marquee in the UK. And they found out that the club sits above a, um, a tube station. And I mean, it sits like 60 feet above the tube station. Uh-huh. But they decided to try to go through the club's floor into the tube station. So they got like jackhammers on stage that night. <laughs> and we're like, and like, you know, the security's running on stage, like trying yeah. to pull them off right, the jackhammers. Right. Yeah, I don't think they would have been successful in reaching the, if the Nazis couldn't hit the tube station with a bomb, you're probably not going to reach it with a jackhammer. <laughs> I remember they had the album Tabula Rasa. Yeah. Right. And, and that's how, so I think that has, you will find be in the garden. Yeah. Yeah. That that was my introduction to them. They, they are absolutely, but amazing. that's a more pop sensible record, I guess, mm-hmm. than what they were known for, which was using actual m- machinery on mm-hmm. stage, right? Yeah, which is great. I always tell people that I my first real instrument was like a metal detector. I realized I could go and I should have stuck with it. If I was a kid, I would have been like the. I figured this out when I was like ten or something, and I thought I can. There's a beat that you can get out of this. It goes like, but it was also like a little drum machine. You go and I thought. If I'd been smart, I would have just like made something out of it. I tried later on make a, um, a synthesizer because I had like these. I was interested in electronics and stuff, and I needed a keyboard. And the girl that lived down the street um, provided me with one. She got a um, like a little organ thing that I tore. And then I found out later on that she'd stolen it from a church, from like this weird Holy Roller church. And then like uh, I, I wouldn't turn her in because you know, and, and and I think you know, I think they wound up like preaching a sermon against my family. Maybe she, maybe she put it under her dress like she was pregnant. Like I know, no, I think somebody broke into the church and it was gone. So like, yeah. like I put it together later on because the cops are asking kids because they figure it's kids, you know. Right. And they're like, do you know anything about a, a missing organ? I'm like, that's funny. I just got one of these, you know. She's the original organ donor. There we go, organ donor. Yep. Hey, uh, what? Okay, so what is what is your creative 
plans this year other than working on a song with me for the Edgar Allan Poe LP? Oh, there you go. What, um, what, are, you, right, what so are you working on? I'm working on, I have a thing called Seventh Victim that I got into only because my friend Stephen Archer, who did the artwork for a mutual friend of ours' album, um, he had a, um, he, I was backstage, again, I think it was backstage at VMV, maybe, or it might have been something else. Now, this might have been backstage at um, Velvet Acid Christ playing with the birthday party. But Stephen was, um, was giving me crap for never having a thing. You know, like everybody else, every other band person has a thing. They have a separate thing. I never really have a separate thing. And what is it? A solo project? Yeah, like, it was a solo thing. And he said, okay. and I said, yeah, well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll get a thing. And then, and so Stephen walked, got, left the room, came back and goes, next month you're opening for me in Delaware. So I had a month to build a system. Right. Wow. Yeah. And so I, the, the sort of, that's the sort of genesis of what I was doing. So I, I wound up getting these, uh, Korg, um, now, I have like a Korg sampler, and, and uh, uh, I used to play FM synth, and those kind of disappeared, and Korg put out a smaller one, and I was playing around with that, and Vienna heard it, and she goes, that's the first thing I've ever heard you do, it sounds like you. It sounds like the stuff that you, I imagine, or she imagined was in my head, sort of stuff. I, yeah. So, I did that, and it was yeah, it was kind of, because I was still figuring it all out, and basically what I have now is the system I had in the 90s. I have a, um, it's not the same equipment, but it replicates that, so I have a basically a drum machine. I have a couple of synth modules and I use the laptop to do a lot of the sounds and then, you know, I can trigger samples, it's just, which is, I used to have the heavy sampler. And so that's kind of what I do now and I enjoy playing around with it. Today, before you came here, I was just working around with it. And I have, so the whole idea originally was just me, just in the band and that was going to be anybody else. And then a friend of mine was having, uh, he has these nights where um, he has covers you, you, and so my friend Dane and I had a thing, Children of Pompeii, named after our late Fred, Freddie Pompeii, who we could do a whole podcast about Freddie Pompeii. And, um, and, but Dana, uh, got pregnant and so she couldn't, you know, do the, uh, that anymore. So I was just kind of off doing this stuff on my own. And when we did that together, we would, I would play like a guitar, which, you know, the Elise is wireless. You can go anywhere with it. It's great. And so mm. we would do like Hendrix covers. We played a night of Hendrix covers. We played like three Hendrix covers as a goth, way goths would do it. Right. And we, uh, we didn't break character. We kept telling people that, you know, we worked at Hot Topic and our manager let us have the night off. And we would, we thought we were going to get killed. We, we go to the show and we figured nobody's going to be here for this. It's Hendrix cover night. So we go across the street, we're eating, we come back and the place is packed. And we're like, we're going to die. <laughs> we're going to get up. And, and it, fortunately people liked it. So I wound up, um, that project had to fold. And then I wound up with, uh, I just had my own little thing and I needed a name and seventh victim was on TV. All right. So getting to the crux of the story. So my friend, John Cecil Price would put these nights together of covers and he would, um, he had Van Halen cover night. And, I don't know a lot about Van Halen. So I was like, oh, let me do this. And I um, I was trying to think, what can I do? I I got like the, the short end straw, which is Jamie's crying. Because I wanted to do, um, why can't this be love? Because that's the worst lyric in the world, which is only time will tell if we will stand the test of time. Which is <laughs> horrible, right? But yeah. like, everybody else wanted that. Like, so Gibbous Moon are playing this thing. It, it was a great night. There was a guy who had all his home-built stuff, MIDI triggers that were you know, using shoes and steering wheels. You know, it turned out to be a wonderful night. But the, uh, um, so I just got, I only have one song. So I thought, what can I do with this? And I was like, well, maybe if I have like someone like an invocation. And I happened to luck out and I found a young lady on the web named Orly Stewart, who is a, a Wiccan. And she was doing this invocation of Lilith. 
so okay, now I've got this, and I've reworked the song. Um, so I've got something tied together, this sample of her that, that, that runs through it, you know, in and out. But it's still got, and I thought, I can't sing this because it's not, it, it, you know, first of all, the song is not good. <laughs> and then the, uh, um, I thought, if I have a woman sing it, it's better. So I just put a thing out on Facebook, and I said, are you kind of spooky and witchy? Can you sing near or in the key of E flat? Can, you know, and... Uh, fortunately for me, my friend, uh, my, now my friend and, and member of the band, Janet, answered it. And she has turned out she to be amazing. She is super talented and she's a super hard worker. And that to me is, you know, Janet will never cancel a practice. She's always there. She's always, and she puts in 110%. And we, the weird thing is we can't play Friday. This is how slow I am on the uptake. She's orthodox, okay. so we can't play Friday nights. Right. <laughs> so, she, so she gave me this calendar at one point, and she's like, well, here, because it has all the major holidays and all this. Yeah. So I'm like, well, why are you giving me a Jewish calendar? Oh, like I never put together her yeah, yeah. hair wrap and everything. Yeah. I'm like, and I like, I just thought it was her look. I'm like, oh, okay, now that makes sense <laughs> to me. But yeah, so sometimes I do the shows by myself if it's a Friday night or something she can't do because it's a high holy holiday. But she is absolutely amazing. I, I had her doing a percussion thing the other day, and she freaking nailed it. So I was just like, I was like, oh, I gotta have more percussion and stuff. So yeah. that's what I do now, and that's that's where my focus. And I want to make a serious project. But, hmm? Well, it's this it's is called your... Seventh Victim only okay. because it happened to be what was on TV yeah. at the time. Uh, Turner Classic Movies was showing Seventh Victim. I was like, I need a. I need a name. So I occasionally take band names from movies. So are you doing live shows? Yeah, or? live yeah. shows. Yeah, yeah, I did yeah, a yeah. I've done a couple of them. My first live show I got uh, when it was just me before Janet was in the band was opening for My Life with a Thrill Kill Call. Wow. Which was a sold out show. Wow. That's Trial by Fire. And How'd, uh, that, how'd well, that go? It went great, but it went great because, um, uh, first of all, I got the thing and I, I, I wrote back and I said, the guy asked me, I'm like, wow, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you like the music I'm doing. He's like, I haven't heard anything you're doing. I just hear your stuff that's in a low area. And they don't want to break down. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, well, I'll take the show. However, right, so right. I work out the set. Half hour goes really well. I'm really happy with it. You know, all the equipment fires and, you know, because you can always get a misfire with that. Yeah. And everything goes fine. I come off stage. I'm super happy. And I go backstage. And now I, they said, you have to be on 830 off my nine. No, no, don't go any longer. Uh -huh. No, I got this worked out perfect. So I, I go off and, you know, I bring, I take everything backstage and there's Groovy Man, but there's nobody else from Philco call. So I'm like, um, where's the rest of your band? He's like, oh, they, they went to the hotel. I'm like, where's the hotel? He's like, it's by the airport. I'm like, okay, we're nowhere near the airport. Like my house is in South Philly where we yeah. are and we're still far away from the airport. So they were like an hour later. So probably more getting back. So there was this big gap. You could have played longer. Yeah, you know, I could have. Yeah. Well, I don't think I had enough material. Right, I was right, like, right, a lot right. of it was like, I had one of the songs uh, actually wound up on the uh, um, the the thing on Bandcamp is a song where I uh, worked it out just so I could leave the stage, walk off yeah. and say, look, I'm getting paid to play a half hour. I mean, I got to be on stage for a half hour. I would go get a beer, come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. So weird. Yeah. Was Thrill Kill Cult show good? It was fantastic. Yeah, it was. They didn't like it. And I'm like. How could you not? Everybody who was there, that was that they nailed it that night. Yeah, they did. Would you fear for you? Uh, do you fear for your child? That sounded fantastic. Yeah, they they hit everything perfect. Well, uh, we talked forever. We'll spread the awesome. word. Yeah, this yeah. is good. This <laughs> is the longest podcast. Yeah, I'm trying to think now if we'll divide it into two, but maybe we won't. <laughs> We'll maybe just do an epic one. People always have to do that with me. I got to divide yeah. it into two parts. So I could talk in it. <laughs> that's, you know. that's good. Well, because well, when I was young, I would read like Rolling Stone. They would just say the same thing over and over. Yeah. I'm really excited about the new album. <laughs> I double tracked that guitar with a 12 string. 
We're going to play Europe. Ah, I screamed, no, no. What, uh, what, what are you, Twitter's Rodney Anonymous? Yeah, it's Rodney. I think it's Rodney Anon or something. Okay. I don't know, yeah. Are you on Instagram? I am on Instagram. I love Instagram. Instagram yeah. is great because it's like, yeah. it's like, you know, social media without Nazis. <laughs> Joe, Joe says something very similar. What? That he loves Instagram. Yeah, Instagram's perfect for Joe because, yeah. you, know, really, you know, nobody gets in a fight over Instagram. It's just, yeah. you know, you make the person go away. You know. Post it, keep it moving. Yeah, there you go. And, um... <laughs> Your band camp is, is the seventh victim. It's the seventh victim. You can yeah. find us. There's another band called Seventh Victim from the UK that just we found out about. So I want to write them and say, Hi, we're your American cousins. There's but if you get them, you'll like them too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. This thank you good. very much. I enjoyed the heck. I almost cursed the heck out of this. Cheer. Yeah. Who's that? Who's that in the house tonight, Edgar Allan Poe, America's favorite anti-transcendentalist. We're taking this back, way back, 19th century style. Who's that? Who's that rapping? Who's that rapping at my chamber door? Mr. Mr. Raven, I'll up in my grill with the nevermore. It's MC Lars and the Dead Milkman. I'm rapping with some legends of punk rock. Yo, Rodney Anonymous, let's flow like Poe. Here we go. Once upon a midnight dreary, wildlife Weekend weary, dark and cold, just like Lake Erie. Milkman remix, someone clear me. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping. Up like what? This thunder clapping, stopping like the devil or a parish chaplain. I dropped my Lovecraft on the floor, like Arthur Gordon Pym on a distant shore. Open the window, let the fire escape. Man in the alley, black hat and cape. 20 pound bird lands on my seal, cold feet, cold eyes, gives me a chill. Nevermore. Who's that? Who's that rapping? Who's that rapping at my chamber door? Mr. Mr. Raven, all up in my grill with the nevermore. Who's that? Who's that rapping? Who's that rapping at my chamber door? Mr. Mr. Raven, Lenore, my Annabelle Lee, taken by angels from me, alone with books, hey that's me, harbinger of death, visiting me, I said can I help you, evil prophet, if you got a problem, look I'll solve it, he checked my hook, DJ revolved it, perched on palace, chalice, drop it, tell me sir, please if you can, am I a good or evil man, what can I say, what can I do, when will I be rid of you, nevermore, quoth he at Like Gordon Ramsay, I jumped into my El Dorado and checked my cask of Amontillado. Call a nurse, disperse my thirst, put this process in reverse. Wish I had some warning first. MC Lars, 88 Hearst. Now I'll never ever be Sage Francis while on my grave. This blackbird dances. The raven's eyes still have the seeming of a demon that is dreaming. Lamp light over him, still screaming. Hear me screaming, hear me screaming, my soul. There on that floor and shall be lifted nevermore. Afflicted calm scratched up my door. Canonized peace, US folklore. Who's that? Who's that rapping? Who's that rapping at my chamber door? Mr. Mr. Raven, I'ma put my grill with the nevermore. Who's that? Who's that rapping? Who's that rapping at my chamber door? Mr. Mr. Raven, Corvus Correx, can sell the store. Who's that? Who's that rapping? Chamber door, Mr. Mr. Raven, I'm up in my face.
That was Mr. Raven, the 2012 revisitation with the Dead Milkman from the Edgar Allan Poe EP. Great interview with Rodney. Thank you, Rodney. I love you, buddy. It's great catching up, and thank you for your hospitality. Next week, we have Rob Piccinini Jr., because some of you may know, I have a show coming up with Big D and the Kids Table where I'm playing a lot of the Robot Kill stuff, and they're doing the 10-year anniversary of their album at Bright Music Hall, June 8th. So the Monday before that is my interview with Rob. So be sure to check that out June 3rd. He was my original bass player. We toured England three times. He recorded on some tracks. He has a bunch of cool bands in Jersey. And we just talk about the early years of the graduate era touring. So it was kind of nostalgic and dope. So anyway, thank you all for listening to the MC Lars podcast. Thank you for your support on Patreon. Please leave a review. Please tell a friend. And I hope to see you at one of the shows coming up this summer. All right. Thanks all. Bye.